This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 183rd edition of the program. Today is Friday, March 8th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up either just this last week for the first time or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Alex Julian, Clay Turnbull, Corey Thrall, Dirk Himes, Eric DeSegno, Jerry Rubenfield, Joseph Gorgon, Lisa Hillisland, Marcus Kinland, Michael Edwards, Miles Patrick Katie, Nicholas Chiaprari, Nicholas Norton, Rolo, Sasha Hossein, Simon Back Thogard, Susan Hunter, and Timbo HP. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. And also you can now join by clicking join underneath one of our YouTube videos. In fact, some of the names here are our very first YouTube members. So that's definitely exciting. Thank you all for signing up. So on today's show, we have a jam-packed episode. We'll talk about how Ilhan Omar faces Islamophobic threats, but is still nonetheless under attack by the establishment due to her criticism of Israel. Bernie Sanders came to Ilhan Omar's defense. Bernie Sanders also got grilled over reparations while other candidates are getting a pass that they don't necessarily deserve. So we'll talk about why the narrative surrounding this issue in particular is suspect. Also, Clinton staffers are taking shots at Bernie Sanders again in Politico. We'll talk about right-wingers accusing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of not only violating campaign finance laws, but wanting to ban hamburgers. Also, a CNN panel unanimously rejects Joe Biden for 2020, and Alison Camerota is shocked by that. Tucker Carlson fearmongers about universal daycare, Sean Hannity fearmongers about the Green New Deal, and the Democratic Party introduces a bill to restore net neutrality protections, and in this week's weekly dose of stupidity segment, we'll take a look at what happened at this year's annual CPAC conference. So those stories, along with others, will be covered on today's show. Let's go ahead and get into it. I hope you guys will enjoy the program. Ilhan Omar is one of the few lawmakers in Congress who's actually fighting for the American people. She's advocating for policies that we all overwhelmingly support, like Medicare for All. However, because she is a Muslim woman of color, it's not like she could just get to Congress and then advocate for these issues on a daily basis. She also has to simultaneously put up with vitriol and hate. And an example of that was put out on display at a public event sponsored by West Virginia's Republican Party at the state's capitol, where a poster stated this about Ilhan Omar, quote, never forget you said, I am proof you have forgotten. And the overt implication here is that since Ilhan Omar is a Muslim, she's therefore culpable either directly or indirectly for the 9-11 terrorist attack. It is a disgusting poster, it's brazenly Islamophobic, and at this point, 
there's still a lot of confusion about that particular poster and who put it up. One individual who worked at the um, state legislature resigned but claims somebody from the public brought it in since it was a public event. I don't know. The details are still a little bit um, fuzzy. But the point is that this is what Ilhan Omar has to deal with. If I were elected to Congress, I would be able to just fight for Medicare for All. I wouldn't have to put up with that much bullshit. But because she's a Muslim woman of color, she has to deal with these things that impede her ability to actually do things that would help the American people. It's an obstacle that is specifically hurting her chances of being more effective. And she responded to this poster saying, no wonder why I am on the hit list of a domestic terrorist and assassinate Ilhan Omar is written on my local gas stations. Look no further than the GOP's anti-Muslim display likening me to a terrorist rocks in state capitals and no one is condemning them. And she also shared a picture with the words assassinate Ilhan Omar demonstrating proof that, you know, the situation really is as bad as she's saying it is. And you don't even have to look very far to see how bad it is, because just under this very tweet were a bunch of Islamophobic attacks saying, you know, you're not American. Somebody accused her of being anti-American, or un-American rather, and used the hashtag war. Another conservative dingbat questioned whether or not the hate she's receiving is due to her supposed hate speech against APEC. And that both sides approach to, oh, well, maybe it's kind of deserved because you said something bad about APEC is something that you'd expect from just conservatives who are trying to troll, not from other lawmakers. However, that's kind of what we got. So, for example, this is what lawmaker Nita Lowy tweeted out. Gross Islamophobic stereotypes like those about Ilhan Omar recently featured on posters in West Virginia are offensive and have no place in political discourse. Anti-Semitic tropes that accuse Jews of dual lo loyalty are equally painful and must also be roundly condemned. So, they're trying to both sides this. At least, Nita Lowy is. She can't just say, this Islamophobic poster is disgusting. She has to both sides it and bring up supposed anti-Semitic comments that Ilhan Omar made again. But understand, you're not coming to her defense here, Nita. You're not a hero. Because what you're doing is you are tacitly endorsing the idea that hatred against her is justified by saying this. Because what she's referring to is another supposedly anti-Semitic comment that Ilhan Omar made that actually isn't anti-Semitic when you have the context. So as NBC News reports, speaking Wednesday night at a forum at a Washington, D.C. bookstore with fellow freshman representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, the Minnesota Democrat said she fears everything they say about Israel is construed as anti-Semitic because they're Muslim. She said that prevents a broader debate about Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Some Jewish leaders said she then revived an old trope about divided loyalties among Jewish Americans when she said, quote, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. She added, quote, I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the National Rifle Association or fossil fuel industries or big pharma and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy? Now, what she's essentially saying here is, look, me as a congressperson, I'm expected 
to not be critical of Israel. I'm supposed to shut up shut up when it comes to issues related to Israel-Palestine. If I speak out on behalf of Palestinians and Israel's human rights abuses, well, then I'm anti-Semitic. If I talk about the lobbying influence of APAC, then apparently that's anti-Semitic. So what she's saying here is that we can't actually have a reasonable debate if we're not allowed to criticize Israel. And she even clarified this in response to Nita saying, quote, our democracy is built on debate, Congresswoman. I should not be expected to have a allegiance slash pledge support to a foreign country in order to serve my country in Congress or serve on committee. The people of the fifth elected me to serve their interest. I am sure we agree on that. I have not mischaracterized our relationship with Israel. I have questioned it and that has been clear from my end. I am told every day that I am anti-American if I am not pro-Israel. I find that to be problematic and I am not alone. I just happen to be willing to speak up on it and open myself to attacks. My Americanness is questioned by the president and the GOP on a daily basis, yet my colleagues remain silent. I know what it means to be American, and no one will ever tell me otherwise. I'm in the Horn of Africa this weekend, proud to see peace prosper here, and to be part of the first American delegation to Eritrea in decades is one I am grateful for. I fight peace and justice because only those who experience the pain of war know the joy of peace. Being opposed to Netanyahu and the occupation is not the same as being anti-Semitic. I am grateful to the many Jewish allies who have spoken out and said the same. We must be willing to combat hate of all kinds while also calling out oppression of all kinds. I will do my best to live up to that. I hope my colleagues will join me in doing the same. So I don't think she can possibly be more clear here. She's condemning anti-Semitism in all forms, but simultaneously she's saying, look, I care about human rights. I care that the Israeli government, not the Jewish people, but the Israeli government itself is oppressing the rights of Palestinians and treating them as third-class citizens. And that's unacceptable. That's what she's getting at here. But what do they do to try to dismiss her and shut down debate? They call her anti-Semitic. Now, you'd think that after seeing the harassment she receives, seeing the poster linking her to the 9-11 terrorist attack, her colleagues in the House, especially Democrats, would be extra cautious in speaking about this issue and not trying to condemn her because anything can possibly be seen as fanning the flames of hate against Ilhan Omar. But did they do that? No. In fact, they were especially harsh against her this time around, even more so than last time, because you had Representative Juan Vargas calling her comments anti-Semitic and saying it's unacceptable to even question our country's relationship with Israel. He also called on her to apologize. You have Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a serial election meddler, trying to both sides the situation in the same way that Nita Lowy did. And collectively, you now have House Democrats taking action against her because of this. And as Politico reports, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and top Democrats will take floor action Wednesday in response to controversial remarks by Representative Ilhan Omar about Israel, the second such rebuke of the freshman Democrat from party leaders in recent weeks. A resolution on the floor, regardless of whether it specifically mentions Omar, would be a rare public reprimand from House speakers, particularly against a member of their own party, and speaks to the seriousness with which Democratic leaders view the ongoing controversy. So the takeaway here is that criticism of Israel is just simply not allowed. You are not allowed to criticize the Israeli government and the crimes that they commit against the Palestinian people unless you want to be labeled as someone who is anti-Semitic. That's the takeaway here. 
Ilhan Omar is being silenced by Democrats who were just celebrating her electoral success in November. They were saying, we're so excited to have a Muslim woman of color representative in Congress because your voice matters. We need your voice because it's lacking. People like you don't have representation. Well, what happens? She gets to Congress, speaks out, and then everyone tells her to shut up. It's disgusting. So understand, Democrats are jumping on this bandwagon specifically because they don't want to offend one of their biggest donors, APAC. That's what this is about. It's not about whether or not they care about anti-Semitism. They don't care about that. They care about getting that money from APEC, which is not a representative of the average Jewish American or Jewish person. It's an organization that lobbies on behalf of the Israeli government and their geopolitical dominance in the Middle East and North Africa, and it isn't bankrolled by Jewish people at large, it's also funded by American oligarchs and evangelicals. So to say that APAC is a synonym for Jewish person is deeply offensive. As Katie Halper says, it's a trope in and of itself, but that's what they're using to shut down debate with regard to this issue. So there's just absolutely no room for nuance here. You can't have a thorough discussion here, a genuine debate about ideas. It's all a dogpile on Ilhan Omar to tell her to shut up. And what Democrats don't realize is the same individuals, the fake feminists like Nancy Pelosi, who claim to care about women, what they're doing here with this resolution to condemn Ilhan Omar is paving the way for and legitimizing attacks like this. I'm going to say it. She is filth. She has no place in the Congress. She has no place on the Foreign Affairs Committee. It's outrageous that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, the most powerful Democrat in America, appears on Rolling Stone hand in hand with her smiling this week. It's outrageous. That was Donald Trump's campaign advisor calling one of the first Muslim women elected to Congress filth not even hiding their racism. And this is the exact types of attacks that Democrats who are dogpiling on Ilhan Omar rather than defending her against harassment and hate are currently legitimizing. So they should all be coming to her defense after seeing what she has to put up with the harassment and whatnot, but because she threatens the status quo by having a conversation about a topic that has previously been taboo, well, they don't even care how it looks. They want to get her to shut up. Sorry, we don't care if you've been harassed and if you have death threats written on the gas stations in your district. We just want you to shut up and not talk about this issue because it's inconvenient for us and it may offend one of our biggest donors. It's absolutely despicable and I just want Ilhan Omar to know that real progressives, we actually do stand with you. And we appreciate everything that you're doing because you're not just fighting for American people, but you're having to put up with something that few lawmakers have had to dealt, deal with, you know, in American history. And um, it's it's heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking. I truly feel for her. And she, she's got to be protected at all costs because I worry about her safety and I worry that Democrats don't even care that they're fanning the flames at this point. Disgusting. 
It's already bad enough that Ilhan Omar has to put up with Islamophobia on a daily basis. There are threats to assassinate her written on the walls of gas stations in her district. There's Islamophobic posters in the West Virginia state capitol about her implicating her in the 9-11 attacks. So it's bad enough that she has to put up with that nonsense, but she also is now being vilified and smeared by pretty much everyone in the establishment. APAC really does have an influence on politicians like she says it does does in fact she's being proven right every single day so nobody wants to come to her defense everybody wants to vilify her however thankfully something really important just happened bernie sanders spoke out on behalf of ilhan omar in a really powerful rebuke of the universal condemnation that she's had to put up with over the course of the last month. And as Daniel Morans of HuffPost reports, Senator Bernie Sanders condemned an effort by House Democratic leadership to rebuke Representative Ilhan Omar for comments she made about the influence of the pro-Israel lobby on American foreign policy. Anti-Semitism is a hateful and dangerous ideology which must be vigorously opposed in the United States and around the world. We must not, however, equate anti-Semitism with legitimate criticism of the right-wing Netanyahu government in Israel, Sanders said in a statement on Wednesday. Rather, we must develop an even-handed Middle East policy which brings Israelis and Palestinians together for lasting peace. What I fear is going on in the House now is an effort to target Congresswoman Omar in a way of stifling that debate he continued. That's wrong. So, this was incredibly important and I'm glad that he actually came to her defense because it seems like nobody wants to defend Ilhan Omar. And for the most prominent Jewish American politician to come out and say what she's done here is nothing wrong, that is really important. And it's especially disgusting to equate legitimate criticisms with Israel's right-wing government and their corrupt war criminal prime minister with anti-Semitism, because then what you do when we're in this environment currently where anti-Semitism is on the rise and we need to be especially vigilant about it, you make legitimate instances of anti-Semitism be more likely to get dismissed by people because you're calling criticism of the Israeli government anti-Semitism, which is unacceptable. And what she's saying with regard to loyalty to Israel and how lawmakers are expected to be loyal to Israel and not criticize Israel, and how individuals across the country are expected to sign loyalty pledges to agree to not participate in boycotts, divestments, or sanctions movements against Israel, it's absurd. So what Bernie Sanders did here, it really is important, and it's a show of solidarity and strength for the progressive movement. However, with that being said, I wish that other lawmakers would also come to her defense. You do have people like AOC speaking out about this, but not pleasing anyone with what she's saying. And if you look at her tweets as of late, a lot of progressives are disappointed. And rightfully so. I mean, I feel disappointed as well because, you know, if anyone should be speaking up, it's someone who's also a target of the establishment, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and whether she likes it or not, she's a leader. She may not be in democratic leadership, but she is a leader in the progressive movement, so what she says here matters, but trying to see it from her view, I get why you just want to, you know, step back and not fan the flames anymore when you're already a target of the establishment, so I get that aspect, but at the same time, 
APEC is already threatening to take down the careers of Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So you're already a target, and you really have nothing to lose by defending her. So that's just my two cents. I would love to see AOC come out and strongly actually back her and affirm that she said nothing wrong because she didn't say anything wrong. Now, Kamala Harris also came out and tried to defend Ilhan Omar after Bernie did, but I wasn't honestly too pleased with her response because she kind of skirts around the real issue and she avoids tackling whether or not Ilhan Omar said anything wrong, which she didn't. So let me read to you what Kamala says. Quote, Senator Kamala Harris provided a similar statement shortly after Sanders on Wednesday. We all have a responsibility to speak out against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, racism, and all forms of hatred and bigotry, especially as we see a spike in hate crimes in America, Harris said in a statement. But like some of my colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus, I am concerned that the spotlight being put on Congresswoman Omar may put her at risk. We should be having a sound, respectful discussion about policy. You can both support Israel and be loyal to our country, she continued. I also believe there is a difference between criticism of policy or political leaders and anti-Semitism. At the end of the day, we need a two-state solution and a commitment to peace, human rights, and democracy by all leaders in the region, and a commitment by our country to help achieve that. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I can say I appreciate her attempt to defend Ilhan Omar here, but she kind of sidesteps the entire question of whether or not she thinks Ilhan Omar is um, actually guilty of anti-Semitism, which in actuality, she's not. It's just a ploy to shut down debate and get people to not want to speak out about Israel's war crimes and human rights abuses if they're going to be labeled as anti-Semitic. So Kamala Harris doesn't address that head on, but I mean, I guess it's the thought that counts. But Bernie's statement, however, was much more clear and it was much more direct in saying what she said here was not anything that should be regarded as anti-Semitic. There's actual anti-Semitism in the world that we do need to fight and we need to fight that vigorously. But is what Ilhan Omar said anti-Semitic? Absolutely not. And to call it that, you are shutting down debate and as Bernie states, that's wrong. So I am thankful that he decided to speak out. Um, and I will continue to defend Ilhan Omar on this front because really what we're seeing here is a concerted effort by the establishment to get her to shut up, to basically intimidate her into silence and browbeat her until she stops criticizing Israel because this topic, it's taboo. And we have a lot of individuals in Congress who are bankrolled by the Israeli lobby. And that's just not funded by Jewish Americans and Jewish individuals. It's funded by evangelicals and oligarchs who are concerned about Israel's geopolitical dominance in the region, not necessarily the plight of the Jewish people. So these are bad faith actors making a bad faith argument, and I wish that all people would see that, but not very many people are, but at least Bernie Sanders, a Jewish American politician, is, and I think that that is really important here. So we've got an update to the story regarding Ilhan Omar and the House Democratic Party's plan to rebuke her publicly on the floor, and it seems as if they're actually starting 
to kind of back off in a way. So as Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Glenn Thrush of the New York Times reports, earlier in the day, Democrats, including some prominent African Americans, confronted Speaker Nancy Pelosi at a testy, closed-door meeting, demanding to know why they were being pushed to pass the resolution when bigoted comments by Republicans have gone unchallenged. Representative Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts, said she told leadership that there must be equity in our outrage, noting that Miss Omar, a Minnesotan and one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress, was being attacked for her faith. Islamophobia needs to be included in the anti-Semitism resolution, she told reporters on Wednesday. We need to denounce all forms of hate. There is no hierarchy of hurt. What would be the appropriate level of punishment? A public flogging? Representative Raul Grijalva of Arizona, the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, asked in an interview after the meeting. We're all responsible for what we say, and there are consequences, whether it is this resolution or something else, Mr. Grijalva said. But there is a double standard we have to be aware of. The level of condemnation on Miss Omar has been really intense. So this tells me that maybe it's the case that they're starting to get it at least a little bit. Because after Republicans repeatedly do these types of things. You have Kevin McCarthy denouncing Ilhan Omar, but putting out a tweet where he singled out three Jewish billionaires getting away from all of this unscathed. You have Donald Trump not unequivocally condemning neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville, saying there were very fine people on both sides, feigning outrage about this, and tweeting, quote, It is shameful that House Democrats won't take a stronger stand against anti-Semitism in their conference. Anti-Semitism has fueled atrocities throughout history, and it's inconceivable they will not act to condemn it. You have tweets like that from Donald Trump, who endorsed a pedophile, Roy Moore. You have members of the Republican Party, Steve King, who are actual white supremacists questioning why it's controversial. I mean, do we have to go on? The president of the United States, he called for a total and complete shutdown on Muslims entering and exiting the country. The Republican Party is supporting Donald Trump in his effort to ban transgender troops from serving in the military. The Republican Party is speaking out on behalf of religious bigots who own bakeries, for example, and businesses that want to discriminate against members of the LGBTQ community. The Republican Party says nothing about violence against trans women, especially trans women of color. So they're allowed to be openly bigoted. And nobody really bats an eye at that. But now, when Ilhan Omar says one thing that's perceived as anti-Semitic, when in fact it is not, when Jewish leaders like Bernie Sanders came to her defense, all of a sudden, the Democratic Party is expected to dogpile on her? No, that's complete bullshit. And it's about time that the Democratic Party is finally being made aware of this double standard. The Republican Party can be as hypocritical as they want to be, and there'll be no repercussions ever. And it's about time that Democratic leadership of all people finally recognize this. It's about time that they stop falling for the Republican Party's attempts to pit the Democratic Party leadership against their own members who are actually popular, who are actually fighting 
for the American people. So to see people like Ayanna Presley put pressure on Nancy Pelosi and call out this double standard, I'm feeling a little bit more encouraged. I will say that because at the beginning of this week, I know myself and other progressives just felt demoralized because it's like, if we can't have an honest and open discussion about war crimes and modern day apartheid and genocide being carried out by a country without being called anti-Semitic, Palestinians never have a chance at escaping oppression if this is what's going to happen because America is one of the few countries who actually could make a difference here if we wanted to. So, it is encouraging to see this, and Nancy Pelosi, not only is she kind of backing off now, but she even defended Ilhan Omar, albeit in a tepid way that's not entirely agreeable, but nonetheless, she's definitely walking back her initial condemnation. So, as Mike Lillis of The Hill reports, she says, I don't think that the congresswoman perhaps appreciates the full weight of how it was heard by other people, although I don't believe it was intended in an anti-Semitic way, Pelosi told reporters at the Capitol. But the fact is, if that's how it was interpreted, we have to remove all doubt. So it is important to acknowledge that the discussion has progressed in a positive way, because if you'll recall, at the beginning of the week, they were talking about whether or not they would name her, and now they've ruled that out, and now they're expanding the rebuke to include other forms of hate, which is important. Now, the resolution itself has since passed, and it does indeed seem to be an improvement over what we were expecting at the beginning of the week. We were expecting it to target Ilhan Omar, but it has since expanded and now includes all forms of hate. So as James Zogby points out, the Dem House bill is finally out, drama is over, and result is a good resolution denouncing all forms of hate or intolerance against any religious, ethnic, or racial communities. Those who intended to target Ilhan Omar and steamroll a bill that would support their position lost big time. And now it's the case that there are 23 Republicans who voted against it because it became something that didn't target Ilhan and just was a general denunciation of hate. Now those Republicans are taking heat because they voted against it. This includes Liz Cheney and Louis Gohmert. Now Nancy Pelosi, she says here that, you know, since it was interpreted as anti-Semitic, we have to remove all doubt. No, you need objectivity objectivity is the goal here because anytime there's a bad faith actor who's going to say something is anti-semitic to shut down debate and get you to be quiet about human rights abuses committed by the right-wing israeli government you can't just say oh well now i have to be quiet no you have to be objective and if you see an instance of actual anti-semitism then of course you have to call that out and progressives do call that out what ilan homar is saying it's very scary to me, and it's very scary to a lot of people, and I don't think you have to be Jewish to recognize that. You don't. That. So you can't allow Republicans to set the terms of the debate, because what they do as bad faith actors is exploit that situation. So for example, when it comes to the gay baker in Colorado choosing to discriminate overtly against LGBTQ people because he offers wedding cakes to straight couples but doesn't provide that service to same-sex couples, what do Republicans do? They flip it. They say, oh, well, this is religious bigotry if you try to, quote, force him to bake that cake, when in actuality, the real bigotry 
And the real harm that's being done is to the LGBTQ couple who's being denied a service that straight people otherwise receive from that same baker. So you can't just take people at their word when there are so many bad faith actors in politics. You can't do that. You've got to be objective and you've got to be nuanced and acknowledge that Yes, anti-Semitism is not only a problem, but it's on the rise currently, as is white supremacy. But don't let people like Donald Trump and the Republican Party to exploit this issue for their own political purposes and for purposes of political expediency to attack someone who's a really powerful voice in Congress, like Ilhan Omar. Don't let them do that. And I'm glad that people are finally coming to her defense and that the Democratic Party leadership is seeing that they need to back off here because all they're doing is being pawns in the Republican Party's game. So I don't really have to tell you guys this, but it's very clear that Bernie Sanders is loved among the Democratic Party base. However, there still is a small sliver of Democratic Party loyalists, namely Hillary Clinton's sycophants, you'll see them on Twitter, who just hate Bernie Sanders, and their number one goal in life is to take him down. Now, the reason why Hillary Clinton's staffers, I'm assuming, are so butthurt about Bernie Sanders surging in 2020 is because they're mad. They were expecting Hillary Clinton to get elected. They were expecting to have a job in the White House, and they didn't realize that amid all of their hubris, they were turning off the party's base. They were not energizing people to get out and vote for Hillary Clinton. So instead of having a job in the White House and being in this prestigious, powerful position, they're angry and they are ranting about this on Twitter and they're delegitimized and they have really no street cred whatsoever when it comes to strategy and when it comes to politics. So what are they doing? They're taking shots at Bernie Sanders still in the media. And we covered a story last week about how they were criticizing Bernie Sanders because he dared to request a private jet in certain instances when he was campaigning for Hillary Clinton so he could be more efficient and get to places quicker. But now we're seeing another article where they are just downright throwing everything they've got at Bernie Sanders. So as Holly Otterbein of Politico writes, both on the record and on background on Twitter and on cable television, Clinton's former aides and allies are taking pains to lay out what they see as all of Sanders' flaws, imperfections, and vulnerabilities, much as he once did to their ex-boss during a primary that saw mud flying on both sides. I would say, and for all I know, the Sanders people might take this as a compliment, among a lot of the major donors in the party, there's concern that he could emerge, said David Brock, a longtime Clinton ally who founded a pro-Clinton super PAC in the 2016 campaign and later authored a public apology to Sanders for some of his bare-knuckled criticisms during the primary. There are some very dyed-in-the-wool Democrats that wouldn't at all be enthusiastic about supporting him in the general election. In recent weeks, former Clinton aides have blasted Sanders for everything from his policy record to his campaign kickoff speech to the composition of his small-dollar donors. The attacks come as Sanders is in the midst of a successful rollout raising $10 million less than a week into his 2020 candidacy and attracting a combined 25,000-plus people to his first two kickoff rallies. When Sanders pulled in $1 million in the first three and a half hours of his campaign, Adam Parkham the former director of grassroots engagement for the 2016 Clinton campaign, tweeted, only half were named Vladimir. 
In a February op-ed for NBC, Zach Petconis, the director of Rapid Response for Clinton's 2016 campaign, slammed Sanders' past positions on gun control, immigration, and same-sex marriage. And after Sanders' first rally this weekend, former Clinton campaign aide Zerlina Maxwell claimed on MSNBC that Sanders did not mention race or gender until 23 minutes into his speech. She later walked back her comments somewhat after critics, including former Sanders campaign staffer Walid Shahid, noted that Sanders talked about racism and sexism much earlier in the event. Yeah, so I have a lot to say about this. First of all, when David Brock says that the fact that the Democratic Party's major donors see that his individual donations could carry him to the nomination and that they're afraid of that, yeah, I'm sure the Sanders team is going to take that as a compliment. I would take that as a compliment. So it just goes to show you how out of touch these elitist limousine liberals are. They think that normal Americans don't like what Bernie Sanders is saying. They think that the Democratic Party's base don't like Bernie Sanders because he dared to run against Queen Clinton in 2016. But in fact, we don't like Hillary Clinton, and we actually love that he decided to have the courage to challenge the Clinton machine when everyone else, like Elizabeth Warren, pretty much cleared the field for Hillary Clinton. And I also love that they are trying to blast him for his stance on same-sex marriage. As a member of the LGBT community, I find that criticism of Bernie Sanders just completely rich. Because... You backed a candidate that was one of the last people that came around to supporting same-sex marriage. So you have no credibility here. And for the people like Zerlina Maxwell to completely blast Bernie Sanders and attack him for not being more clear and direct in his message about race, you backed Hillary Clinton. You were an aide to Hillary Clinton, one of the candidates with the worst record on this issue, who called black youth super predators. The only other person who may be worse than Hillary Clinton on this issue is Joe Biden. So if you worked for Hillary Clinton, you're not woke and you don't have the credibility to attack Bernie Sanders for not being good enough on this issue if you worked for Hillary Clinton. So it's just unbelievable to me that these people think that we care about what they have to say when they don't have credibility, when they showed that they don't know how to run a campaign. That's a layup. You couldn't be Donald Trump. So why would you think we care about what you have to say? Another thing here, they claim that half of his donors, Adam Parkamenko, um, specifically said half of Bernie Sanders' individual donors were named Vladimir, or only half were named Vladimir, to kind of get Bernie Sanders and imply, look, he is a Russian stooge, and the Russians are trying to prop him up in the same way that they propped up Donald Trump. And the perfect response to this came in the form of a tweet from Kyle Kulinski, who states, quote, if only some of us predicted, they would immediately flip Russiagate nonsense back on the left. That's exactly right. They're taking these troll farms, these clickbait farms that the Russian government utilizes and pointing to, I guess, these buff Bernie memes as evidence that Bernie Sanders is um, being propped up by the Russians in the same way that Donald Trump was. Well, I've got really bad news for you guys. Donald Trump didn't win because of the Russians. Donald Trump won because Hillary Clinton didn't know how to read the room in an anti-establishment election cycle. Hillary Clinton decided to not campaign in Wisconsin. Hillary Clinton decided to ignore fears that she was too far to the right and chose a running mate that was to her right. Hillary Clinton did not lose because of Russia. She lost because 
she sucks. Simple as that. But what they're trying to do is exploit this Cold War paranoia that has reemerged since 2016 in order to use this McCarthyist smear against Bernie Sanders. But it's a lie, and he wasn't being serious, admittedly. He was being facetious. But at the same time, what if? If he could basically put it out there as if it's an open question, like Bernie Sanders is being propped up by the Russians, then he's doing his job. More on this here. Quote, Still, Sanders doesn't pretend he and Clinton are pals when he was asked last week on The View whether he would seek advice from Clinton as other 2020 contenders have. There was no artifice in his answer. I suspect not, he said. Hillary and I have fundamental differences. His answer didn't go over well with Clinton allies who viewed it as a poke in the eye. I don't know who our nominee is going to be, but I am damn sure that beating Trump and getting America back on the right footing is going to require a unified Democratic Party. So crap like this 613 days before the election day is irresponsible, counterproductive, and sets us all back, tweeted Clinton spokesman Nick Merrill. Brock said the major party donors were concerned about Sanders for two reasons, electability and a difference in ideology. As a self-described democratic socialist, that's just a step too far for a lot of people, adding they worry that he would end up losing to Trump. They're incredibly transparent. They're trying to do whatever they can to take down Bernie Sanders, including concern trolling. Bernie, how could you possibly say you wouldn't seek advice from Queen Hillary, who lost to Donald Trump? Why wouldn't you ask her how you can beat Donald Trump in the event you become the nominee? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Because she lost to Donald Trump? Another one of my favorite lines Crap like this, 613 days before election day, is irresponsible. Do you not hear what you just said? 613 days until election day? That's almost two years. What are you talking about? I mean, they're trying to do whatever they can to paint Bernie Sanders as the bad guy. And I just love how David Brock here, he keeps giving us this perspective of the Democratic Party's donors. Oh, well, they're worried about his electability and, you know, difference in ideology. And they worry that since he's a self-described democratic socialist, he could lose to Donald Trump. I've got bad news for you, David Brock. We don't care what the Democratic Party's donors think. And furthermore, if you're worried about electability and how that democratic socialist label will affect him, well, you're going to have to grapple with the fact that no matter who becomes the Democratic Party's nominee, they're going to be labeled a socialist. The Republican Party called Obama a socialist, and they said that Obamacare was socialism. So it doesn't matter who wins. But I think that Bernie Sanders actually has an advantage in a way by calling himself a democratic socialist. Because if you just admit that you're a democratic socialist, and really he's a social democrat, but if you just admit that, then you are are actually taking back that narrative from the GOP and you're actually defining what it is rather than allowing them to define it for you. But with Kamala Harris, she'll say, look, I'm not a democratic socialist, but Republicans are going to call her a socialist anyway. So regardless, this is something you're going to have to deal with. But they're so clueless that they think that, you know, it's, it's better to just pretend that the socialist issue is going to go away if we elect a pragmatist. It doesn't matter who becomes the nominee. Republicans, Donald Trump, will name that individual, him or her, either a socialist and probably a communist as well for any policy they propose. So 
shut up about this. It's such an idiotic point to make, and it's evidence as to why you guys lost to Donald Trump, because you know nothing about strategy, and you don't know how to win. Now, the last thing that I want to read to you here is to assure you that if you're a Sanders supporter, you really shouldn't be worried about this because this is the impact it has. Here's what Jeff Weaver says. The campaign in 2016 never did better than when we were being attacked by the likes of David Brock and allied parts of the party, he said. They were great for increasing our crowds, great for increasing our fundraising, and great for increasing our votes. So what they're doing here is they're kind of sparking this rally around the flag effect, albeit with Bernie Sanders. They're getting more protective of Bernie and they're flocking to Bernie and donating to Bernie whenever they see these hacky attacks being lobbed against Bernie Sanders. So in a way, they don't realize that they're actually undermining their own cause and they're helping Bernie Sanders. But again, I'm not surprised that they don't really see how what they're doing is backfiring because these are Clinton people. They know nothing about strategy because they couldn't defeat Donald Trump. And... All that they're doing here is voicing their grievances with Bernie Sanders because they are deluded enough to think that he's somehow responsible for Hillary Clinton not beating Trump when that couldn't be further from the truth. He campaigned for Hillary Clinton and attended 39 events when, if I were Bernie, I wouldn't have attended a single one after the DNC tipped the scales against Bernie Sanders and essentially rigged it for Hillary Clinton. I don't feel angry when I read these articles. I'll say now what I said last time. I just feel pity for these people. These are sad people who are angry at the fact that they will never work in the White House and that Hillary Clinton will never be the president of the United States. Bernie Sanders recently appeared on The Breakfast Club to talk about his 2020 campaign, and I will link to the full interview down below, and I would encourage you to watch it because it was incredibly entertaining. I think that Bernie Sanders was witty, he was relatively charming, and I think he did a good job at answering their questions in a manner that's thorough, and I tend to enjoy the interviews that The Breakfast Club does, not only because it's entertaining, but I do like how Charlemagne pushes his guests to give very direct answers. Um, so all around, I think that this was really fascinating, and I, I liked the appearance here. I think that it did good for Bernie Sanders. However, the question of reparations came up, as it has been coming up for Bernie Sanders recently. He was asked about this on The View as well, and he was grilled about it. And I'm not necessarily against candidates being grilled, including candidates who I support. I think that if you are inclined to support a candidate, then you shouldn't try to sweep all of their negatives under a rug. You should bring it to light, ask them about it, and even if it's uncomfortable, ask them questions that you want direct answers to. So I don't have a problem with Bernie Sanders being pressed on this issue. However, what I do have an issue with is Bernie Sanders being held to a different standard than every other candidate on this issue, and it's not just this issue. When you look at other issues, such as sexual harassment, you'll see that Hillary Clinton shielded an advisor who was accused of sexual harassment in 2008. A top aide to Kamala Harris resigned after agreeing to a settlement for sexual harassment allegations. Yet, when it comes to this issue specifically, Bernie Sanders is the only one who seems uniquely culpable if you watch the mainstream media, whereas when it comes to Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton, even though the same things transpired under them and their campaigns, 
They don't get questioned there. So the same is now happening with regard to reparations. Now, again, I want to stress here that I am not against candidates being pushed and being asked hard questions. In fact, I support reparations and I do want Bernie Sanders to do better on this issue. At a minimum, I want him to support a bill like H.R. 40, which simply studies the impact of reparations on the African-American community and how this would impact them economically. Now, I don't think he's answering this question adequately. However, what's a problem is that individuals like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, they're being credited, given credit for something that that they don't deserve, supporting reparations, when in fact... What they say when you listen to them on this particular issue is pretty similar to what Bernie Sanders is saying. So, for example, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, they got credit from an article in The Hill where they both say that they support reparations. But when you dive a little bit deeper and you see what they mean with that particular question and when they use that term, well, it turns out it's not really reparations. So, for example, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, as The New York Times explains... The Warren campaign declined to give further details on that backing, but it came amid her calls for the federal government to provide special home buying assistance to residents of communities that were adversely affected by redlining the discriminatory practice of denying mortgages, usually in poor and non-white areas. She also announced a sweeping universal child care proposal that could strongly benefit minority communities that often have limited early childhood services. Now, does that sound wonderful? Absolutely. I believe that we should be investing in African-Americans communities who are disproportionately affected by all of the economic issues that white people face. However, is that reparations specifically? No, because when we talk about reparations in the traditional sense, what we're usually talking about is a check. Because there's legal precedent for this. In 1988, Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act into law, which gave individuals who were affected by Japanese internment $20,000 each. So when we talk about reparations, we're not saying investment in the community only, because that's also important, but we're also talking about a check. Is that what Elizabeth Warren is talking about? No. And the same is true for Kamala Harris, who was also credited with supporting reparations. When you ask her what she means by that, it's not really reparations, case in point. Do you support reparations for black people? Well, listen, again, we had over 200 years of slavery. We had Jim Crow for almost a a, a century. We had legalized discrimination, segregation, and now we have segregation and discrimination that is not legal but still exists and is a barrier to progress. We have disparities around housing. We have disparities around education. We have disparities around income. And we have to recognize that everybody did not start out on an equal footing in this country. And in particular, black people have not. And so we have got to recognize that and do something about that and give folks a lift up. That's why, for example, I'm proposing the LIFT Act. Give people who are making $100,000 or less as a family a tax credit, which will benefit and uplift 60% of black families who are in poverty. So by default, it affects black families, but there's not a particular policy for African Americans that you would explore. But no, if you look at the, the reality of who will benefit from certain policies, 
when you take into account that they're not starting at the, at the same place and they're not stand, they're not starting on equal footing it will directly benefit black children black families black homeowners because the disparities are so significant so if we focus on the specific issues that have resulted in the greatest disparities and we understand that that's part of why we're doing it listen the, the reality also is this. Any policy that will benefit black people will benefit all of society. Let's be clear about that. Let's really be clear about that. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No. Now, again, what she's saying here, like Elizabeth Warren's proposal, it sounds wonderful. I think that the LIFT Act is universal basic income light, and it absolutely would help all Americans, including African Americans. However, is this reparations? No. And in fact, she said very explicitly that she's not going to pass something that would only exclusively benefit black people, meaning she's not willing to write checks to people in the same way that we wrote checks to individuals affected by Japanese internment during World War II. So the problem here is that they're being credited for supporting reparations when in actuality, what they're doing is they're taking their proposals and they're slapping the reparations label on it. Now, if you're going to say that you support reparations, then you actually should be clear about that. But this isn't reparations. However, they're still being credited as supporting it when they essentially support kind of the same thing that Bernie Sanders supports, which is investing in the community. Now, again, I want Bernie Sanders to support reparations. I would love for the candidates to start really talking seriously about this and not just paying lip service to the issue by bringing up reparations as a buzzword. But with that being said, if you're going to grill Bernie Sanders on this, then you also have to grill Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris on this. But still, the main narrative that a lot of people are taking away is that Bernie Sanders is somehow uniquely bad on this particular issue. He's not up to par with my standards, but is he uniquely bad? Absolutely not. And when he was questioned about this by Charlemagne on The Breakfast Club, um, you'll see that the way that the entire question was framed was in that false narrative sense that, you know, he is juxtaposed against people who support reparations, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, and he doesn't support reparations. So what gives? Take a look and then we'll discuss. Now, why does it seem like this week you've been kind of dodging the reparations question? Senator Harris and Senator Warren have both kind of spoken out and said that they agree with some form of reparations. Well, what the question is, what do we, I'm not dodging the question. The mm -hmm. question is, what do we mean by reparations? I mean, it, it, it seems to me a lot of people mean a lot of different things. Uh, to my mind, it means that we have to deal with the fact that there is enormous disparity uh, between the black community and the white community, and that issue has got to be addressed. And I've indicated to you some of the ways that I think it should be addressed. Well, I think they mean uh, some type of economic empowerment to the African descendants of slaves. But what does that mean, economic empowerment? If I just talked about the mm -hmm. fact that I would do my best to change the banking system to make sure that we end racism, that we pay attention to distressed communities, that people get the loans they need to make the investments they need. What about free cash payouts? No. How much you want, Sean? Do you agree with that? <laughs> Why don't you agree with that? Well, I, first of all, uh, you mean just a check to every African-American? Yes. Well, then there's a check to every Native American who were nearly wiped out when the settlers first came here. I think the way we go forward is to build America together. There are distressed communities, white communities. There are distressed Latino communities. Right now, 
What you have is a government owned and controlled by big money interest who worries about Wall Street and the drug companies. We're going to change that. And we're going to pay attention to the needs of working families and low-income families uh, in this country in a way that you have never but seen. But this government has also systemically oppressed us in a way that they haven't oppressed other other communities. I mean, through slavery, through segregation, now mass incarceration. And so I think it should be something done specifically for African Americans. Well, and all of those issues, mm -hmm. all right, we are going to deal with mass incarceration. And we're going to invest, I think, at the end of the day, if we end the discrimination that exists in financial services, in health care, in education, if we guarantee health care to all people, if we, and we're working on a particular program, make sure that every person in this country uh, has a job because there's enough work to be done dealing with climate change, dealing with our crumbling infrastructure, I would suggest to you that not only the African-American community, but every community will be a hell of a lot better off than they are today. So the way that Charlemagne framed that question was misleading. The assumption is that he is the only progressive in the race that doesn't support reparations, when in actuality, they're all kind of bad on this issue. Now, I don't actually think that Charlemagne was being a bad faith actor. Rather, I think he is proof that a narrative can catch on and it can catch on really quickly. Now, why did this catch on so quickly and why is everyone talking about how horrible Bernie Sanders is when it comes to reparations? Well, this all started back in 2016 when the DNC, Tom Perez namely, was trying to figure out a way to reframe the narrative because Bernie Sanders was doing really well among millennials and that kind of made Hillary Clinton look bad. So what did they do to combat this? Well, they said once she act actually takes South Carolina, then we flip the narrative. Then we can say, well, you know what? Bernie Sanders may have millennials, but Hillary Clinton has black voters. Now, it is true that Overall, black voters went with Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. However, over the past couple of years, Bernie Sanders' approval rating among black voters and women voters has increased exponentially. He now has the highest approval among black voters. But this narrative still persists because it's one of the most persuasive and effective ways at delegitimizing Bernie Sanders. So people in the mainstream media and who were typically ex-Clinton staffers like Zerlina Maxwell, what they try to do is perpetuate this narrative, add to it so it grows and ultimately hurts Bernie Sanders. So on MSNBC, she literally flat out lied about Bernie Sanders and one of his speeches, and she claimed that he didn't mention race until 23 or 21 minutes, whatever number she said, in when people like Glenn Greenwald pointed out, um, actually that's false. He mentioned it like six minutes in. And if you're a Clinton staffer, you really have no credibility on this issue because when you go back to Hillary Clinton's launch event, she mentioned race and gender zero times. So I'm not trying to insinuate that people are scheming behind the scenes specifically to take down Bernie Sanders with regard to this issue. But what I am suggesting is that a false narrative can get legs really quickly and it could harm a candidate arbitrarily so because if we are going to criticize candidates 
for being horrible on reparations, then you can't just uniquely target Bernie Sanders. If you are a media pundit who truly cares about reparations like you say you do, as you are in the media and you're trying to talk about the campaign, then you need to have an honest and nuanced discussion about reparations and admit that none of the candidates support reparations. And rather than just simply asking these candidates like Bernie Sanders if they support reparations directly and have them define it, you need to ask them very specific questions about bills like HR4. Do you support something like John Conyers' bill that was just recently reintroduced in the latest congressional session that actually studies reparations? And when you do that, when you ask these types of questions, you'll get closer to the heart of the issue. So when it comes to presidential candidates supporting or not supporting reparations, really none of them have a leg to stand on. Except Tulsi Gabbard actually did co-sponsor that piece of legislation that commissions a study on reparations. So if anyone should get credit, it's Tulsi Gabbard currently, not Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. However, what's happening here, what we're seeing in action is American oligarchs, media elites trying to use this issue to hurt Bernie Sanders specifically. It's not that they care about reparations genuinely, it's that they're trying to weaponize this to hurt Bernie. Now, why do I think this is the case? Well, because mainstream media is incredibly selective in who they choose to credit here. So, for example, Julian Castro claimed that he also supports reparations in a recent interview with The Root. Now, he admitted here that it would be a challenge and that he doesn't know what it would look like, meaning he'd be open to probably the same types of half measures that everyone else is supporting. But there's a very specific reason why Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris gets credit for supporting reparations, but Julian Castro doesn't. It's because the establishment, I'm talking about the media class, uh, pundits, American oligarchs, political elites, they don't view Julian Castro as someone who actually poses a real threat to Bernie Sanders, unlike Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. They're individuals that can actually beat Bernie Sanders. They have a better shot. So it's better to try to use this issue to elevate their campaigns and give them credit where it's not deserved for an issue like reparations in order to hurt Bernie, because if you elevate the person that can best beat Bernie Sanders, then you're kind of doing a type of Pied Piper strategy where you're elevating the best chance at defeating Bernie Sanders, which is their ultimate goal. So the reason why Julian Castro isn't talked about in this discussion, even if he also shouldn't get credit, is because he doesn't really have a chance to beat Bernie Sanders. And again, if they truly cared about reparations in and of itself, as an issue, they wouldn't be trying to credit people like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, who are essentially only supporting reparations and name-only plans. They'd actually be talking about candidates that do support reparations. They'd be talking about candidates like Tulsi Gabbard, who have co-sponsored H.R. 40, which is a real step forward into moving towards giving descendants of slavery reparations. They'd be talking about other candidates who actually support reparations in the form of a check. But I know what you're thinking, Mike. Well, it seems like what you're telling me is that no candidate really does support reparations. But wait, there actually is a candidate who supports reparations, who should be getting the credit that Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris is getting. And that individual is Marianne Williamson, a candidate who nobody really has heard of, but when she's asked about reparations, she actually is very clear. Yes, I support reparations in the traditional sense of the word. This is how she answers that question. Right now, you are a candidate who 
believes that African Americans should receive reparations for slavery, specifically $100 billion paid out in a 10-year annual installment of $10 billion. <coughs> is this symbolic, or do you think this money goes to some practical purpose? This is not symbolic at all. At the end of the Civil War, General Tecumseh Sherman promised to every formerly enslaved person 40 acres and a mule. And those 40 acres and a mule would have given a formerly enslaved population an opportunity to reintegrate, to integrate into free society. What happened instead, of course, was black code laws were passed in the American South, which ensured subpar uh, social and political and economic opportunities for the former uh, slave population. This was not addressed for a hundred years until the Civil Rights Movement. And while the Civil Rights Movement gave Voting Rights Act, although mm -hmm. that has been chipped away uh, since 2013, and gave a lot of political uh, opportunities that had not been there for the hundred years previous, it did not address mm -hmm. the fact that we have not yet paid that debt. Germany has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations since World War II, and Ronald Reagan signed the American Civil Liberties Act, by which we paid every surviving member who had been interned during the, during the World War II in the Japanese internment camps $22,000. Right. I believe $100 billion okay. given to a council that would apply these, this mm. money to economic projects and educational projects of renewal for that population is simply a debt to be paid and you, uh, until we pay it we will deal with these issues that's how you answer a question in my view about reparations it's a debt that's owed it's a moral issue and she was very clear so ask yourself this why isn't the media trying to juxtapose bernie sanders with marianne williamson why isn't the question well bernie do you support reparations like marianne williamson does why is it, well, Bernie, do you support reparations like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris does? Well, in my view, it's very clear that it seems like they're trying to prop up the candidates who are best positioned to defeat Bernie Sanders. If you credit Marianne Williamson, that doesn't really do anything because she has little to no name recognition. I like her as a candidate, but let's be clear here. Her chances of winning are very low. So if you're going to give her credit, and you're a media pundit who wants to defeat Bernie Sanders, you're not really going to do much to further this narrative that Bernie Sanders is bad, because then you'd have to compare Marianne Williamson with all the other candidates, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, who is better than them on this issue. But the reason why they don't actually want to have a real conversation about reparations and they just want to defeat Bernie is evidenced by the fact that they're not talking about the candidate who has come out explicitly in favor of reparations. So this is all nothing more than a coordinated effort to weaken Bernie Sanders and prop up basically anyone else that has a chance of defeating him. It's incredibly slimy, it's deceptive, and we need to actually be educated. As American citizens, we need to be educated on this issue. So if you're going to ask a candidate a question about reparations, then you need to preface that question with a description of reparations. Because if you allow a candidate to just say they support reparations, then that's not really telling us anything because nine times out of 10, they're going to say that they support investment in the communities, which again, 
I support, but that's not what reparations is. I support both. I think that what we need to do is what we did in 1988 under the Civil Liberties Act. We need to write a check to American descendants of slavery. But media doesn't really care about having that discussion. All they care about right now is trying to promote this narrative that not only is Bernie Sanders horrible on race issues and has no support from people of color and women, but he also is uniquely bad on the issue of reparations because he says he doesn't support reparations. Well, in actuality, would you rather have a candidate who tells you straight up that they don't support reparations or have someone lie to you and try to get you to think that they support reparations when really what they're promoting is reparations in name only? So I think that all the candidates are trying to compete right now with Marianne Williamson because on this issue, even though I don't support her over Bernie, I do agree with her more than any other candidate on this issue, but she's not getting the credit, and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris is because, again, they're the ones who can beat Bernie Sanders, and that's what this is all about. It's strategy. It's a way to get Bernie Sanders to look worse because, you know, that's what the media wants right now. Oligarchs in this country, they don't like Bernie Sanders. They all want to see him tank. They all want to see him go down. They're trying to draft whoever can possibly beat him. Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke. And they're going to use whatever they can find to try to tarnish Bernie Sanders' reputation. Now, again, if you genuinely care about reparations, then I have no qualms with you actually trying to push him to do better on this issue, and he should do better on this issue. But all of the candidates, excluding maybe Tulsi Gabbard and Marianne Williamson, should be doing better on this issue. Trying to have a genuine conversation about reparations, that's something that's really important, and I think we need to be talking about that. But if you're trying to make this about Bernie, you are trying to change the conversation that American descendants of slavery, this movement, has been trying to have. They've been trying to have reparations penetrate national political discourse. And they're finally having that happen, but the narrative is being hijacked for disingenuous purposes in order to taint Bernie Sanders' record. And I find that incredibly discouraging. Conservatives are always trying to find some reason to attack Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but they have this new line of attack on her to target one of her greatest strengths and really what makes her stand out amid a Congress that is largely bought off by special interests. Now they're trying to say that she is not only corrupt, but she broke the law and her team is guilty of campaign finance violations. So take one of the greatest things about AOC, that she's funded entirely by grassroots, and flip it and say, actually, she's just as corrupt as everyone else. Now, before we get to their argument, let's just think about this for a second. The prospect of her being corrupt and how preposterous that is. When you look at her donations, 60% come from small individual donors. And furthermore, she doesn't accept corporate PAC money. She only accepts PAC money from Justice Democrats and unions. And what's especially hilarious, or more specifically what's ironic, is that they're attacking her for supposedly being corrupt, all while standing for one of the most corrupt presidents in American history, who was actually busted for violating campaign finance laws by using campaign funds to pay hush money to a porn star he had an affair with. 
So it's hilarious that this is how they're choosing to attack Ocasio-Cortez. But if you guys want to play that game, then let's go ahead and play that game. So here's what Sean Hannity says about her alleged criminality with regard to campaign finance violations. She's really just interested in improving her own quality of life and redistributing the wealth among those in her own inner circle. Look at this. According to a brand new bombshell FEC complaint, Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff is now accused of illegally moving nearly a million dollars in campaign contributions to his own private companies. And in doing so, well, that money could be shielded from all election-related reporting. In other words, Ocasio-Cortez under fire tonight, her chief of staff, could have used those donations for anything without reporting it, including maybe big payments to themselves, their family, their friends. And we already know, based on a separate FEC complaint, that Ocasio-Cortez's boyfriend, well, he was funneled thousands of dollars from a political action committee set up by this very same chief of staff. But really, who can blame him for taking the money? After all, it's incredibly expensive to keep up with the jet-setting lifestyle of the freshman socialist congresswoman. So this is a very serious allegation that he's making here. He's saying that what her chief of staff did... Troikot Chakrabadi is he took funds from her campaign and he funneled it nearly a million dollars into his own private company so that way he or she could use those big payments to themselves, their family or friends. So he's actually trying to allude to the fact that this is explicit corruption. Maybe they took this money. We don't have evidence yet, but maybe it's the case that they wanted to take this money and um, make a payment to themselves. Now, also, he says that uh, her chief of staff, quote, funneled money to her boyfriend. In other words, her boyfriend worked for the campaign and he was paid for it. And we don't really even have to dive too deep into what he means there because they use the same line of attack against Jane Sanders when she was working for Bernie Sanders and conservatives said back in 2016 that, oh, well, look, he's taking campaign funds and he's giving it to his wife. Yeah, because she's working for the campaign. So this is not something that's abnormal. It happens all the time. Family members and relatives and loved ones often work with the politician who's running for office. Nothing to see here. They won't tell you that, though, because what they want to do is get you to think she's overtly corrupt and that something shady is going on here. And what they're trying to do here, what Hannity said at the very end of that clip there was that, look, you know, she's living this lavish lifestyle. So maybe that's why she wants to funnel money into her chief of staff's private company and why her boyfriend is getting money, quote, funneled to him. And again, this is another myth that they perpetuate with regard to Bernie Sanders and claim that he's living this lavish lifestyle and has three houses, even though one was inherited by Jane Sanders. And another aspect of irony here is that as they accuse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, individuals who are progressive, of wanting to live these lavish lives, they're standing for someone who actually has been living a lavish life, who literally shit in a gold toilet. I'm talking about Donald Trump. And to condemn them for supposedly wanting to live a lavish life is rich, no pun intended, especially considering that they condemn people who attack individuals who are successful and who have wealth all the time. Here's just a really short clip demonstrating that in action. They resent wealth. And if you've got it, they want it. It's a war on the wealthy. It's, it's a war on wealthy. They don't like wealth. So what happened? I thought that Fox News was against 
people being shamed for being successful and being wealthy. So do you understand here? They have a different set of standards for themselves than they do for everyone else. If Donald Trump explicitly violates campaign finance laws in order to give hush money to a porn star he had an affair with, that's acceptable. If he wants to shit in gold toilets, that's acceptable. However, anytime there's a campaign finance violation allegedly against a progressive, unacceptable. If they want to live lavish lifestyles, well, we can berate them for that, but don't berate any other rich person for that. Just the people that we don't like and who we tell you you shouldn't like. Now, when it comes to the merit of this FAC complaint, not that there is any, and whether or not her chief of staff illegally moved money to a secret account, well, that's not actually the case. And here's what Jane Time of NBC News explains. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's congressional campaign has come under scrutiny in recent days for what a conservative group has alleged is a massive violation of campaign finance law. The National Legal and Policy Center filed a complaint with the Federal Elections Commission on Tuesday, alleging that the New York Democrat and her allies used a corporation to skirt campaign finance reporting laws. The complaint comes after a number of conservative-leaning outlets said Ocasio-Cortez broke campaign finance laws when she hired her boyfriend for marketing work. Campaign finance experts, meanwhile, told NBC News that while the structure of her campaign and its vendors might be confusing, there's no evidence of some kind of million-dollar scam as has been alleged in news reports. There's no evidence of self-dealing or any kind of elaborate scam, two experts told NBC News, which is often the major concern with LLCs and PACs run by the same people. Brendan Fisher, a director of the Campaign Legal Center, said scam PACs typically pay their staff huge salaries without doing much campaigning work other than fundraising, which doesn't appear to be the case here. He said he hasn't seen evidence of wrongdoing that would suggest any laws were broken. So in short, no guilt, no evidence of culpability whatsoever. But Sean Hannity is trying to get you to think that someone who is the least corrupt is actually very corrupt. Now, the question is, where did he even get this idea that her chief of staff moved almost a million dollars to his private company? Because that sounds pretty sketchy if you don't have the details, except when you look into the details, it's not sketchy at all. So if you'll all recall, going back to 2016, after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, there were many progressive activists that came together to form organizations such as Brand New Congress, Justice Democrats, all to make sure that we elect a new wave of progressive politicians who are unbought and uncorrupted. And the article continues by talking about where that money went. Quote, the activists eventually founded three entities to meet their goal. Two PACs, Brand New Congress PAC and Justice Democrats, which would raise money, identify and train candidates for office, and Brand New Congress LLC, a business that would be a vendor where staff could do things like fundraising and field work. Through this structure, both PACs and candidate campaigns pay the LLC for various services. We had in our operating agreement that the goal of the LLC was not to make a profit, and as such, we made our prices as low as possible while still satisfying the FEC's requirement that we are charging something reasonable because, again, if we weren't, we would essentially be doing heavily discounted work for candidates, and that is illegal, the Justice Democrats' explanation continued, later adding that this structure was later abandoned 
as the work the Pax did changed. The LLC was created by Chakrabadi, who was also involved in the founding and first year of the Pax. He went on to manage Ocasio-Cortez's bid to represent New York's 14th district in February 2018, but did not take a salary from any of these organizations or her campaign, according to his attorney. The two PACs eventually paid brand new Congress LLC nearly a million dollars total during the 2018 campaign cycle. Justice Democrats, which paid the LLC the bulk of that money, would take credit for electing seven new members to Congress, including Ocasio-Cortez. Her campaign paid brand new Congress LLC $18,880. So the details are complex and kind of convoluted because this is something that's new. These packs just formed in 2016. And so they're going to be different than standard super PACs. There's two PACs, the Justice Democrat PAC and the Brand New Congress PAC. And then there's Brand New Congress, the organization. So all that that moving of the money was, was simply um, Ocasio-Cortez paying for the services of um, brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. That's all it was. And again, let me remind you what the goal of these companies are or what these organizations are and the one company is to elect uncorrupted politicians to Congress. But yet they're trying to use that, ironically enough, as evidence that AOC is corrupt and that what they're doing is suspicious. Actually, the opposite is true. But I'm glad that Suddenly, it seems as if conservatives care about campaign finance violations. So let me ask you this, conservatives. If you care so much about campaign finance violations all of a sudden, then will you join progressives like myself in calling for a constitutional amendment to completely get money out of politics? And we're not talking about removing dark money. We're not talking about more transparency. We're talking about taking the money out of politics entirely. Will you join me there? And also, will you stop supporting candidates like Donald Trump or Duncan Hunter, who are overtly corrupt, who used campaign finance funds to buy games on Steam, or like Donald Trump used campaign funds to give hush money to a porn star so she wouldn't speak out and ruin his 2016 chances? Of course, they're not going to do that because these are hypocrites. Again, they have a completely different set of standards for us than they have for themselves. They're allowed to be corrupt and then call out corruption when they see it, supposedly on the left, but when it comes to them and the Republican Party and candidates that they support, they don't say anything. It's because these are political hacks. These are bad faith actors making bad faith arguments against people who are the least corrupt. So AOC may not be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everyone has their flaws. But is she corrupt and did she break campaign finance laws? Absolutely not. And this is nothing more than a disgusting smear from conservative outlets and conservative hacks like Sean Hannity. Disgusting. Fox News propagandist Sean Hannity decided to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, which is incredibly popular, by the way. It has support from 92% of Democrats and 64% of Republicans. So presumably, Sean Hannity is going to talk about it perhaps to chip away at its popularity. However, what you're going to see is that he's not going to actually accomplish what he sets out to do because he's going to actually end up inadvertently promoting the Green New Deal in his attempt to attack it. Now, as you watch this clip, try to keep track of all of the buzzwords he throws around like extreme and radical. 
All right, welcome to Hannity. A lot of breaking news tonight. The 2020 presidential election is officially gearing up, and the Democratic Party, they're imploding. Radical, extreme, far-left socialists have now taken over any and any Democrat who doesn't fall in line and support this radical, extreme agenda, this left-wing vision, if you will. You get thrown down the curb by Ocasio-Cortez. You have a group now, and all of America needs to see this. Hyper-partisan freshman lawmakers, they are now leading the way. They set the agenda. Nancy Pelosi is afraid of all of those freshmen. The list is led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, according to a report from The Washington Post, she warned her fellow Democratic lawmakers not to vote with Republicans or she's going to put them on a list to be primaried in the next election. Welcome to Congress. Now, no surprise there. Political intimidation is always a key component of socialism. Now, after all, she needs as much support as she can get for this insane Green New Deal, which vows to totally reshape America by putting an end to all fossil fuels, combustion engines, nuclear energy, airplanes, and yes, cows because of flatulence and CO2 gases. It also promises to provide everything is free. You don't have to worry another day in your life. Free government healthy food, free daycare for your kids, free housing, free college education. Forget about K through 12. Free universal health care, free, free. Oh, but pro-choice Democrats, they're going to allow, allow you to have your private plan anymore. Forget choice. You get guaranteed vacations. You get universal guaranteed income, a guaranteed retirement, even people unwilling to work. Now, in case you missed it, here's the overall point that he was trying to drive home here. Radical, extreme, far-left socialist, radical, extreme agenda, hyper-partisan political intimidation, socialism, insane, everything is free, 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 free. So do you get the point? This is what priming is. Priming is where you try to put a particular thought in someone's head without explicitly saying what you want them to think about so that way they think they thought about this on their own accord. So for example, if I use the words buffoon, White House, orange, and idiot, I'm not telling you what to think about, but I can assume that Donald Trump came to mind because I wanted you to think that you reached this conclusion and thought of Donald Trump when I said these things so I can still have plausible deniability and say, well, I didn't say Donald Trump was a buffoon and an idiot. You thought of that. You thought his face in your head when I listed off those words. So when he is using buzzwords like radical and extreme, he's trying to prime his audience to think about the Green New Deal in a certain way. And it's clear what he wanted you to think about it as. Radical, extreme, far-left socialist, radical, extreme agenda, hyper-partisan political intimidation, socialism, insane, everything is free. Free, 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 free. What? He didn't say it. He never used the word communism. You thought about it. But he was trying to prime you to think about communism and think about the Green New Deal as if it were communism because he's using all of these words that kind of point to communism. This is priming. This is how propaganda is disseminated. And it's exactly what he was trying to do here. The problem is that Sean Hannity is not a very good propagandist because he is incredibly transparent. And not only that, he's really bad at trying to drive a particular point home because if you'll recall, he tried to fearmonger about her platform and he made it seem as if 
policies such as support seniors and solidarity with Puerto Rico were terrifying and horrible, but everyone saw that and we all just made fun of him. And now we're going to make fun of him again because in an attempt to smear Ocasio-Cortez and portray her as someone who we should all be afraid of, you're actually just giving her a platform and promoting her. So, of course, there were the lies in that segment. He claimed that she wants to ban cows and cars. Complete nonsense. Of course, that isn't the case. But here's what he tells you about the Green New Deal that he thinks will turn you off. Quote, everything is free. You don't have to worry another day in your life. Free government, healthy food, free daycare for your kids, free housing, free college education, free universal health care. You get guaranteed vacations and get universal guaranteed income and a guaranteed retirement. When you say these things, he thinks you're going to just instinctively recoil and have this visceral reaction like, oh, that's horrible. But what you're describing, Sean, sounds amazing. <laughs> and I only wish AOC was that radical. She's not in actuality. I wish she were that radical. But she doesn't support all of these things. Most of what he's talking about here is complete nonsense. It's a lie. But the point is that these aren't things that are going to scare the American people. They know that these aren't freebies because they're not free. We're paying for them for our tax dollars. And we're finally demanding as a people to actually have our tax dollars go towards us and to be reinvested back into our communities rather than funding never-ending wars or giving more tax breaks to the rich. And when you talk about these supposedly scary programs, let's look at this here. 71% of Americans say childcare is either very serious or a somewhat serious problem. I don't think that the idea of free daycare is going to scare those people. 60% of Americans support free college, 70% of Americans support Medicare for all, 78% of Americans support paid vacations, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hasn't said herself that she supports universal basic income to my knowledge, but 48% of Americans do, and I'd expect that to increase soon. Now also, 46% of Americans are concerned about their retirement. So you get the point, and there's not polls for everything that he talks about there, but basically what he's trying to do is say, you know all of these horrible problems that keep you up at night? Well, Ocasio-Cortez wants to solve them. Isn't she horrible? That's effectively what he's doing. He's a horrible, embarrassingly bad propagandist because you're actually making her look good. You're taking things that are popular or concerns of Americans and you're trying to say that they're actually negative aspects about the Green New Deal. Now, again, he's misrepresenting what the Green New Deal is and lying about it. But the things he's saying here, oh, well, everything is going to be free. You never have to worry about anything. Who in their right mind would see that as a negative, Sean? What a moron. He doesn't realize that he's inadvertently promoting it. And I love this. <laughs> now, another thing he says here, quote, pro-choice Democrats are not going to allow you to have your private plan anymore. Forget choice. Except if you actually talk to a normal American, Sean, you'll find out that they actually don't care about their private insurance. They care about their doctor. That's their concern. And moving to a Medicare for all system actually does let you keep your doctor. If you tell Americans, hey, what if I told you that you no longer have to pay your monthly insurance premiums that go up all the time, and then you still have to pay deductibles and copays, and you also no longer have to fill out paperwork every single year to reapply? What if I told you that that could all go away and we could just have the government be the single payer of healthcare? They're going to tell you that sounds amazing. Hence why 70% of Americans now support Medicare for all. 
I don't think he realizes what he's doing here and how his propaganda is actually not helping his cause. And if anything, it's going to backfire. So um, <laughs> all I can say is that if Sean Hannity wants to keep attacking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and criticizing her, then keep it up because you're actually just giving her ideas a platform which are actually overwhelmingly popular, not just among leftist liberals like me, but among your own audience. Because Republicans, a majority of which now support Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, don't agree with you, Sean. They agree with her. The attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have always been pretty petty and irrational and downright dumb, but lately... They've gotten even stupider than they usually are, and I know that we just had this conversation not too long ago where I told you that their attacks on her are getting dumber, but now we've reached a level where they've become so baffling that I don't even know how they expect these criticisms to land. Because if you're trying to take down someone, then the goal is probably to present yourself as a reasonable human being who's making an argument against someone in good faith. But what we're seeing essentially is conservatives everywhere shit the bed in an attempt to take down AOC. And I've got a couple of examples to demonstrate how that's the case. So first of all, we had a Fox News host say that her paying her staffers a living wage is communism. And I wish I was joking about this, but I'm not. Every Capitol Hill office has a limited amount of money to pay their staff, right? right? So you have to decide how to allocate it. She said, everyone in my office will pay a living wage. So I'm gonna pay $15 an hour, which means your entry level intern is making 52 grand while your chief of staff, who is a very important role in a congressional office, now is capped at 80 as opposed to the, the actual market rate at Capitol Hill, which is closer to 150000 So everyone's between 52 and 80. It's actually socialism and communism on display. Yeah, I mean yeah. It is evident to me that that individual does not know what communism or socialism is. He's just invoking those words to scare the rubes into thinking that one of the few people who's actually fighting for you and me in Congress is a scary communist. I mean, it's just embarrassing. If you're going to be doing whatever you can to smear someone, then just don't let your desperation seep through. But they can't help themselves because they've got nothing. And that's not all because she was also criticized for driving in cars. Literally. And again, I know it seems like I'm making this up and I'm being hyperbolic and trying to exaggerate their arguments and have this straw man. But look at this headline. Quote, gas guzzling car rides expose AOC's hypocrisy amid Green New Deal pledge. This is from Isabel Vincent and Melissa Klein. And this entire article, basically, I kid you not, is them talking about, oh, well, on this day, her team logged 66 car rides or 66 airplane rides during the campaign. And, you know, since we've been following this, there's been over a thousand instances where her and her team have taken an Uber or a Lyft. So basically, to summarize the argument, the thesis is that if you are going to participate in society, then you can't criticize society. And as a result, if you are going to claim to care about climate change, then you can't have any carbon footprint whatsoever. Now, 
a reasonable person will know that that's not a persuasive argument because just 100 corporations are responsible for more than 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So obviously it's going to be the case that if you want real change, we're going to have to have people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez traveling around the country, yes, in cars and airplanes, making the case for government-level regulations. Because if we don't do that, then we're never going to be able to stop a climate catastrophe. You can't make the case that we should stop climate change and be very effective if you're going to be walking across the country because you want to reduce your carbon footprint. It's a necessary evil currently, so that way we can take immediate action at the government level. But again, these are bad faith actors who are just trying to find any and everything they can to criticize someone like AOC, who actually is fighting for the people. However, we've gotten to, you know, some pretty dumb arguments. That's not the dumbest arguments. And at the recent CPAC event, I, I don't even know what to say. Essentially, conservatives brought back a similar argument that they'd use to retort whenever a liberal would say, we need some gun reform. Remember when they tell you, well, I'd like to see you try to take my guns. This is what they're using, albeit in a different context, against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They think she wants to ban cows. As far as those cows you mentioned, I've got 100 cows. You just let Alexandria Cortez show up at my house and try to take my cows away. Yes. I, I love cows, Jerry. They're delicious. <laughs> I mean, what do you even say to that? The stupidity on display here, it hurts my brain, and I genuinely feel like I'm starting to lose IQ points listening to these dumbasses talk. And I already know what the critics are going to say. Oh, well, Mike, congratulations. Do you want an award? Because you cherry-picked one example of a conservative trying to claim that she wants to ban cows. Uh, no, it's not just that Jerry Falwell Jr. was talking about her wanting to supposedly ban cows or confiscate cows. Gorka, Sebastian Gorka, someone who used to work in the White House also said the same thing, but he took it a step further and said she also wants to ban airplanes. Take a look. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> has introduced the Green New Deal, which is, which is, remember this one, use it, it's a watermelon. Green on the outside, deep, deep red communist on the inside. They want to take your pickup truck. They want to rebuild your home. They want to take away your hamburgers. This is what Stalin dreamt about, but never achieved. So do you understand here? They're literally trying to promote this idea that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez genuinely wants to ban hamburgers and ban airplanes. We are living out the movie Idiocracy. That's what's happening here. Because I, I don't even know what to say. Do you just laugh at them and shrug it off? Because that was my initial 
instinct, after hearing about how she supposedly wants to ban hamburgers and ban airplanes, until I saw someone who's related to me on Facebook make the same argument and made a post about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to ban airplanes and hamburgers. Oh. So, even if the arguments may be getting dumber, people are hearing them, and people are getting duped by this argument. So it's not like I can just laugh off what they're saying. Oh, she wants to ban hamburgers. How clever of you. We actually have to grapple with this. So I actually have to take the time to explain why it's obviously the case that she doesn't want to ban hamburgers. But before I explain to you that, where did this even come from? Why are they saying that she wants to ban hamburgers and airplanes? Where did this lie originate? Well, as the Washington Post reports, blame it on the farting cows. The now infamous quote appeared in a since-retracted fact sheet that the Office of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put out at the start of February, stating that the resolution's authors aimed to reach net zero emissions rather than zero emissions within 10 years because we aren't sure that we'll be able to fully get rid of farting cows and airplanes that fast. Ocasio-Cortez's spokesman told the Washington Post that the remark was clearly intended to be ironic, but it was too late. President Trump and the right-wing media were already declaring that the Green New Deal was going to eliminate cows and airplanes altogether. In other words, because she dared to be witty, they took her being facetious as evidence that she literally wants to ban hamburgers and ban cows and ban airplanes. Okay, so I guess we're actually going to have to grapple with what she meant here. Because <laughs> this is where we're at now in the state of American politics. So this is what she meant by saying that. Let me break it down. There are industries in this country and in the world that contribute more so to greenhouse gas emissions than others. Factory farming is one of them. And that's because these companies are mass breeding cows and they've done that to the point where there is now more than a billion cows in existence around the world. So what we're doing here and mass breeding cows for purposes of factory farming is we are exacerbating climate change because when cows fart, they produce methane, which is a greenhouse gas that is extremely efficient at trapping heat and thus contributes to the warming of the planet. Now, because it's not possible for us to just snap our fingers and get rid of more than a billion cows within 10 years seeing that they have an average lifespan of 18 to 22 years the goal should be that we reduce greenhouse gas emissions in other areas to net zero because we're not going to reduce them to zero period so we need to reduce them to net zero and we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere where it's possible in order to make up for all of the methane that's being emitted by factory farming. And the same is true for airplanes, since we can't just outright ban air travel, and there's really no other reasonable way to get across the country and travel across the world. We can't do that. So we have to cut carbon emissions and CO2 emissions in other areas to make up for that. It's net zero, not zero in and of itself. So that means that, you know, where you can't cut greenhouse gas emissions within 10 years to meet the IPCC's 12-year deadline, you make up for it in other areas where we can cut CO2 emissions drastically. The fact that I have to explain this is irritating, but nonetheless, you know, that's where we're at. But because she made that witty statement, 
the GOP and conservatives and conservative pundits are all saying, well, look, that was evidence that she wants to ban burgers and ban airplanes. No, you morons. And it's not like they are making these arguments and they're dim-witted. I think that they all know what they're doing. This is a coordinated attempt to smear her in order to get the rubes worried about her plan that would save the future, save their children's lives. So, make no mistake about it, the attacks against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are unquestionably getting dumber. But, since they are so prevalent, and since it is starting to seep into American discourse, and I'm seeing people I know on Facebook, embarrassingly enough, buy into this nonsense, I have to come out here and rebut the bullshit. So, I can only anticipate these attacks on her to get dumber. She's been called a communist and, you know, is supposedly wanting to ban hamburgers. So, you know, I can only anticipate what's going to, you know, um, come out of the right-wing movement in the next couple of months. It's probably going to be worse at the rate we're going. And they're only trying to stop people from taking action on climate change. I said this once about Tucker Carlson, and I'll apply it here. This is the new form of climate denialism, because since you can't really claim to be a reasonable person and outright deny climate change, then what do you do? You attack the credibility of the biggest advocates for change here. And that's what we're doing. It's just that they are somehow using the dumbest arguments possible to try to get them. Well, I mean, you're going to persuade people who are already predisposed to agree with your bullshit, but normal Americans are not going to buy into this. I refuse to believe that this is going to persuade normal Americans. It's not going to persuade you guys, right? CNN's Allison Camerata hosted a panel of 2020 voters, and I found what the participants said absolutely fascinating and actually kind of encouraging. So to give you the setup here, these are all former Hillary Clinton voters. They all voted for Hillary Clinton in the general election. Some of them supported Bernie over Hillary. But what they say now about 2020, it actually was surprising to me because I would have expected CNN to field a panel of people who would say things that were kind to the establishment, and that's not actually what we got here. So, the question is posed to them whether or not they feel as if a pragmatist or a centrist is needed to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. Now, the amount of people that raise their hands is just two out of a panel of six people. Yeah, six people had to check. Um, and I was actually really surprised by this because I would have expected the number to be higher, but it's clear here that people are just hungry for change. So take a look. How many people believe that the, the winning formula would be for a Democrat to be pragmatic and more centrist? Show of hands. Two of you feel that way. How many of you feel that the time is right for a progressive and that's what would win? Carol? We're ready for progressive candidates. They've won all over the country. Um, and I think we need bold, strong leadership. And you'll find that in the progressives. I think that we had the standard bearer for the, the kind of pragmatic, uh, centrist candidate in Hillary Clinton in 2016. And Donald Trump is now the president. He is not your average political uh, 
uh, candidates. So we, we really need to try to think outside the box because, you know, it seems like the dude is made of rubber. Like anything you throw at him just bounces off. I mean, there's nothing that sticks. How many of you would like to see Joe Biden get in? Show of hands. Mm. What's happening, Russell? <laughs> oh, His so, time is done. I'll be honest. I used to think like, you know, because obviously he was riding like kind of the Obama wave. And I thought he was the I thought he was the person that would unite the party. But to be honest, you know, Senator Biden really comes from the kind of the good old boy politics right. of the past. I don't think Joe Biden represents that new thing that we need. Mm -hmm. We He's just behind. we need a new economy. We need a new yeah. politics and Absolutely. we need someone different. This was really interesting to me because what they were saying essentially was that they weren't committed to supporting any one candidate, but they were open, very open to the idea of supporting a uh, progressive. And that's what we want to hear. So this is all great. And what one person said really was something I didn't expect an average voter to say, quote, we had a centrist standard bearer and Trump is now president. And that is precisely what CNN viewers need to hear. Because for all this talk for individuals like Howard Schultz who say, oh, well, you know, we just can't have someone who's on the far left go up against Donald Trump. Otherwise, we're going to have another situation like George McGovern where they get steamrolled. This is 2019. And what was true before is no longer true. And for those of you still vying for someone like Amy Klobuchar or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, to win the nomination, you're setting us all up for disaster and you are paving the way for another Donald Trump victory. Because we had Hillary Clinton, a centrist, in fact, the quintessential centrist, take on Donald Trump and she lost. A hundred million people didn't vote and a lot of the Democratic Party just chose to stay home. So if you want to repeat that, then I don't think you're serious about defeating Donald Trump. Now, you can say, you know what, actually my political ideology and my centrism is more important than defeating Donald Trump, and I'm firmly committed to that, and that's fine. I'd respect you for being truthful about that. However, you can't simultaneously say you want a centrist and to defeat Donald Trump because these things are incompatible. They're mutually exclusive. You can either want to defeat Donald Trump and make that your priority, or you can want a centrist to win the Democratic Party nomination. But you have to acknowledge that if a centrist wins, you're hurting all of our chances. And ultimately, I think what would really be a disaster here if we have a centrist win the nomination is not that Donald Trump will be reelected for another four years, because I think that even if it would be misery, we could all survive another four years of Donald Trump begrudgingly so. But the real issue is the Supreme Court. If we lose the Supreme Court and lose another seat, then we are fucked for an entire generation. Can't let that happen. And I think we all have a vested interest in choosing someone who can beat Donald Trump. It's not a pragmatist. It's a progressive. Um, another person said, I don't think Biden represents the new thing that we need. We need a new economy. We need a new politics and we need someone different. And I think that that really speaks to what's happening right now. You had another person say, interestingly enough, you know, I initially kind of was open to Biden because of nostalgia. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And I think that he's polling really well right now because of nostalgia. People think back to the Obama era and they think, wow, that was a more stable time and there wasn't all of this 
insanity transpiring on a daily basis. But in actuality, the reason why we got Donald Trump is because things didn't improve for normal Americans under Obama. And I think that once Joe Biden opens his mouth again, people are going to realize that because he just has the tendency to piss people off. Last year, he was talking down to millennials, saying, give me a break when they talk about the problems that they have. He recently called Mike Pence a decent guy who is a rampant homophobe. So, I mean, he just has the tendency to piss people off. And I think that the more he talks, the more we're going to realize that You know, the Obama days, even if that brought stability, it didn't bring about the change that we needed and that we were promised. And as someone who's part of the Obama coalition, who was one of the millennial voters who voted for Obama for the first time, I can tell you, I'm very disappointed in Obama and I have nothing but disdain for someone like Joe Biden, who is not going to get in there and change the status quo. He's just going to keep the seat warm for another four to eight years until we get someone worse than Trump, until we get a president, Ted Nugent. Because every time we, you know, have these neoliberal presidents in office, well, people get more desperate, they get more radicalized, and they end up opting for someone even more extreme on the right. So I was really pleased to hear them say, pretty much what I'm telling you and what I say all this all the time on the show. It's not like what I'm saying is unique or, you know, is, is this insight that's just brilliant. It's just being a normal person, understanding the needs of other normal Americans. They then talked about issues that they care the most about. And what was said here was largely agreeable, which again, really surprised me. What will you be voting on in 2020? If the, if the election were held today, Mary, what's your big issue that you feel you would vote on? You know, my big issue truly is about climate change. I think because it it touches everyone and it touches jobs and it touches our future. And we cannot have a conversation about politics without considering what we are doing to the planet. And I mean, you, you see people freaking out over the wall and these migrants coming up from uh, from Central and South America. I mean, that's going to be like nothing compared to the migration we will see as climate change really starts to uh, to affect the sea level rise. I mean, the ice is melting fast. My big issue is the global world order. I mean, we have a president who has humiliated the United States on the global stage by cozying up to dictators, by having a falling in love with the leader of North Korea, by uh, having a relationship with Russia that makes him giddy and excited. I echo all the sentiments on climate change. I also am going to be looking for a candidate that's going to take on sensible gun regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big one for me. That's, that's maybe the biggest one for me. I think overall, like whoever I support, they have to be for Medicare for all. It's hurting so many people. It's something Democrats have worked on for since, since FDR and we, absolutely need to have that it like healthcare just needs to be a human right so for the most part i agree with everything that they said there um climate change medicare for all um gun reform so it makes more sense to acknowledge that yes even though there's this unholy alliance between the left and centrists within the democratic party there is still enough common ground even among the two panelists who are more pragmatically inclined, if you will, to support policies that I also support. So that was encouraging. However, there was one person who said something that didn't 
really um, resonate with me. Quote, my biggest issue is global world order. We have a president who has humiliated us on the global stage. Now for this one, I mean, I can get why someone would say this if they're more of a traditionalist and they are glued to mainstream media. But at the end of the day, what this individual doesn't realize is that America has already humiliated itself on the international stage. We are a bully. We are an international thug. We've had presidents now for decades wage illegal regime change wars in Iraq. We're doing drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. You have Pakistan telling the U.S. government, get out of our country, and they're not listening. So I think that we've done enough to embarrass ourselves, and the way that I can guess that people in other countries view Donald Trump is the perfect representation of American thuggery and stupidity. That's the way I view it. So I wouldn't necessarily say that Donald Trump is unique in embarrassing the country, although I will say this, just because he's so stupid and um, he has a low IQ, like he's genuinely unintelligent, I think that it's more embarrassing than usual. Is this one of my biggest issues? No. So that was the only thing that kind of um, struck me as not really understanding why she would come to that conclusion. You know, things that she cites, love of dictators, that line was incredibly hacky. Um, And the reason why I say that that's hacky is because I want presidents to do diplomacy. And when you consider the fact that the United States gives military support to 73% of the world's dictatorships, this is something that you'd only agree with if you just consume mainstream media and you don't seek out alternative independent news sources. Now, I want to show you one last clip that absolutely surprised me. So they were asked what role they believe Hillary Clinton can play in 2020 and if she should play a role altogether at all. And even the pragmatists gave us an answer that just straight up shocked me. All of you ended up being Hillary voters. So does Hillary have a role in 2020? Should she campaign for? Stay away. Why is that? I I love you, Hillary. (laughs) I love you. I love you. But stay away. We are so divided right now that anything that has Hillary on it is automatically going to separate us again. I just think her time is done. I think it's been, it's done. We we do need something new. Do you feel the same way about President Obama? Should he campaign for who? For, yes, he's a stump? campaign. He's yes. a great campaigner. He's very uh, beloved, and he also has a, a tremendous connection to all the people that he that that love him. Uh, he has a base still, and that base is very strong. And he has, I think, a, a, an authoritative voice against Trump that we're going to need in this campaign. So remember, the two ladies who raised their hands in the first clip I showed you and said that they want someone who's more pragmatic. We're actually the first people to speak out and say, no, we don't want Hillary Clinton playing a role. She's too divisive. So in a clip that I didn't show you, this woman had said that she doesn't support Bernie because she thinks he's too divisive. But to be fair to her, she said the same about Hillary Clinton. So she's someone who is genuinely concerned about unity, which, you know, I, I respect. But I was actually shocked by that because... All we're hearing is about what Hillary Clinton can do and what role she can play. And there was an article from The Hill that came out right before I filmed this segment where she talked about 
playing a role in 2020 specifically with the intent of unifying the party. And my response to that is, if you want to unify the party, then you have to get Hillary Clinton as far away from the party as possible, because all that she's doing is adding to the wedge that exists between the establishment and progressive wings of the party. You have Politico articles where her ex-staffers keep taking shots at Bernie Sanders. One of them is using a Cold War era McCarthyist smear against Bernie Sanders to suggest that he's being propped up by Russians because those individual donors, well, you know, only half of them were named Vladimir. That's what they're saying. So my response was, if I want to stop the pain that I'm feeling from a wound, I'm going to pour salt on it. That's the same logic here. You don't have Hillary Clinton come to unify the party. And for the people that say the same about Bernie Sanders, well, the reason why he's deemed a divisive figure is because of Hillary Clinton. Because she attacked him while playing the victim and pretending that she was attacked. And even David Brock, who attacked Bernie Sanders, then apologized in a way, saying that he was a little bit harsh. So, I mean, these people are, they're so arrogant and they have so much hubris. I'm glad that the panel agrees. Now, when it comes to Obama playing a role, I'm actually a little bit torn because, again, I'm from the Obama coalition. I'm one of the millennial voters that helped him get elected. So when I see Obama campaigning, I feel disappointment and I just, I don't want to hear from him. He's doing his speeches to Wall Street and I'm just, I'm sick of Obama. He did nothing to really substantially change the country when we were promised hope and change. He promised us that he would not do politics as usual. So I really don't give a shit about what he has to say. However, is he good for campaigning? I mean, I'm torn because on one hand, you will have progressives feel dissatisfied and disenfranchised because Obama really was a humongous disappointment. But at the same time, you know, he still has a relatively high approval rating. So I'm kind of torn on that front. But by and large, just kind of ste stepping back and taking this entire panel as a whole, I was pleasantly surprised because when you talk to Democratic Party voters, you expect maybe just one standout who's more progressive oriented. But the entire panel, even if they weren't tried and true Bernie Sanders loyalists and supporters, they did seem a lot more open to progressive ideas, which is what I care about the most, because that does tell me that the base itself is no longer buying into the propaganda being disseminated by the establishment, that pragmatism as a virtue in and of itself is no longer persuasive to people who realize that we actually need significant change if we want to improve the country in a meaningful way. So I um, I love these panels. I hate CNN, but whenever Alison Camerata does these panels, I do think that they're fascinating because it's just a nice little, you know, a snapshot of what voters are feeling. And I do think that that's important um, for CNN viewers who wouldn't otherwise have that perspective to get. So I just wanted to share this with you. So there's a number of 2020 Democratic Party presidential candidates that are proposing a universal child care policy plan, which would actually heavily subsidize, if not guarantee, child care to parents. Now, if you know anyone who has children, you will understand that this is an incredibly important issue because the cost of childcare is absolutely astronomical. And I didn't really know how bad this issue 
was until I recently spoke with a young couple who are trying to find daycare in Portland, Oregon. And not only are all of the daycare facilities booked, but they cost so much money that it's so difficult to afford it because you're essentially taking on a second mortgage or a mortgage in addition to your student loan debt if you want to put your child in childcare so both your parents can work. So it's an issue that's incredibly important and candidates like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders are all proposing some type of policy that would actually help families with regard to this specific issue. But the propagandists at Fox News aren't explaining it to you in that way. Tucker Carlson is going to frame this as nationalization of parenting that the nanny state is trying to come in and raise your children for you that's how he's trying to frame this rather than talking about the need here and the reality of the economy in 2019 where both parents have to work he's gonna say that the government wants to raise your children for you and he's going to be serious about this. Democratic Party has every intention of taking over health care and energy, but they're not stopping there. They'd like to nationalize parenting, too. Both Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have endorsed plans for socialized child care in the United States. The rest of the party won't be far behind because why have parents raise their own kids when the state can do it? Joy Pullman is executive editor at The Federalist, a mother of five, all of them eight or younger, and she joins us tonight. Joy, it's, yeah, I'm glad you were able to get, to get, a, get a break um, to come on. I love your stuff on The Federalist. Thank you Thanks. for joining us. So tell us why we should be skeptical of socializing daycare. Well, I think there's two chief reasons, and the first one is that is not what mothers want for their families, and the second one is that that is not in the best long-term interests of children. So the best research that we have on child care shows that the more that little children are away from their mothers and the longer that they spend, the earlier that they do that and the longer that they spend away from their mothers, the more emotional, psychological and behavior problems that they have long term. Um, so also mothers themselves just really want to be with their kids because they love them and they want to spend time with them. So it's really not good for the overall health of our society to be breaking the mother-baby bond. Um, right. we, what we should be doing is doing everything we can to protect it. Let me just make the counter argument that the left and, and many conservatives make, which is that business demands a higher labor force participation rate for women. It's good for GDP for moms to leave their small children, outsource child rearing to people from foreign countries and get back to work to serve global capitalism. What do you make of that argument? Well, you know, the economy... Well, the, the, point, the whole point of the economy is to support families, right? We, we don't have families in order to support the economy. We have an economy oh. in order to support families. So what we should be doing is not putting the short-term interests of today's businesses you know, first. What we should be doing is putting the long-term health of our society first. It is not good for a society if um, more children are committing crimes you know, when they grew up, as, as happened in Quebec when they implemented um, a, a, a full government daycare program there. It's not good for society when children have more emotional disturbances and they're more aggressive, um, they're having more special needs um, placements and so forth. And so, I mean, all of that, I mean, so, I mean, what's really, again, what we really need to do is think about what's most sustainable for society. And of course, right. business plays a role in that, but it's not the most important thing. So really quick, if uh, every survey shows that most parents would like to raise their own kids when they're little anyway, mm -hmm. if I'm if I was running a political party, that's the first promise I would make to make an economy that could support 
a family on one income. So if you want to, no one's forcing anybody, but if you want to, you can raise your own kids. It seems very simple. Why is no party doing that? So I'm not going to show you her response to that last question because, as you could have predicted, she says nothing valuable or meaningful there. She doesn't add to the conversation. And it's just interesting there. I showed you Tucker asking that question because I think it's ironic that he, of all people, poses that question when he works for the propaganda arm of the Republican Party, who's doing everything in its power to reduce purchasing power for normal Americans. Also, that way, oligarchs in America can have lower taxes. Unbelievable. But understand, the entirety of this conversation takes place in a vacuum, maybe with the exception of that last comment from Tucker Carlson, where they assume that nobody really needs childcare and that the only reason why this is being proposed by individuals like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris is so that way the state can raise your children for you because there's this presumption, and they don't say this explicitly, but it's assumed that the state can do a better job at raising your children than you can. That's essentially what they prime you to believe here, and they do it in a pretty explicit way. So he first says, Democrats would like to quote nationalized parenting and adds, why have parents raised their own kids when the state can do it? Real subtle there, fucker. I mean, Tucker. His guest then comes on, who's a mother of five, so she has credibility. You've got to listen to her because if you're a mother of five, then you are definitely the authority on this issue and you speak for all mothers. She says, well, there's two reasons why we should be against socialized daycare. Quote, the first one is that that is not what mothers want for their families. And the second one is that that is not in the best long-term interest of the children. She adds, it's really not good for the overall health of our society to be breaking the mother-baby bond. So the way that they speak about this issue is as if people have a choice that they can just willy-nilly choose to not put their kids in daycare as if it's not an economic imperative. And it shows you how out of touch they are. This is the conversation that we're all having. This is the range of debate that's reasonable with regard to this issue. And they're talking over here. That's how out of line they are. And they say, well, you know, it really shouldn't be the case that the state raises their kids. Okay, um, I think that most parents would agree with that. So let me ask you this. Will you stop supporting a party and doing propaganda for a party that is doing everything in their power to reduce purchasing power of parents? Will you support a universal basic type income program or social security for all program for single mothers so that way they actually do have a choice and they don't have to send their kids to daycare while they go to work? Because nine times out of 10, if you ask a parent or a single mother if they would choose to stay home and take care of their children rather than putting them in daycare, they're going to tell you that's what they want. But they're putting their children in daycare because they don't have a choice. That's what they don't get. And I'm sitting here as someone who is not a parent thinking, how could you not know this? How could you not know that in this day and age, if both parents don't work, you struggle to survive? And if you're a single mother, it is almost impossible to get by because daycare is expensive and you're forced to work. So what do you do? You've got to take care of your family. Republicans aren't for strengthening our social safety net, so they want to have it both ways. They want to make sure that there's no social safety net, but at the same time, they also want parents to be able to stay home with children if that's what they choose to do. Well, you've got to pick one. You have to pick one. You can't have it both ways, guys.
the reason why they're so out of touch is because when you take a look at the costs of childcare, well, as Fortune puts it, when it comes to infant-based childcare, in 28 states, childcare actually costs more than college tuition. Let me repeat that. It costs more than college tuition. And that includes states such as California, New York, Florida, and states where most of the American population lives, meaning that this is an issue that affects millions of people. And when you look at the average cost of childcare for the age range of infancy to three-year-olds, well, in D.C., that costs more than 22 thousand per year. In Massachusetts, it costs $17,000 annually. In Minnesota and New York, it costs $14,000 each year. And when you even go to the least expensive states like Mississippi, Alabama, and South Dakota, well, it still costs parents thousands of dollars every single year. So when you say that you support a universal daycare-like program, you're not saying, well, I just believe that the nanny state should be raising our children for us because I'm taking a principled position that the state can do a better job raising children than we can. No, that's not what it is. You're just grappling with the economic reality that parents simply can't afford daycare. And it would be best for them, they'd be able to pay more bills if both parents work. But if they do that, then they have to deal with astronomical costs with regard with regard to childcare. So the fact that they don't see this and that a mother doesn't understand that, it tells me that she has a privilege that other parents don't have. She's in an economic position where she doesn't have to work, where she doesn't have to make that choice, where she's not forced to go to work and find daycare for her five children. And I love how Tucker Carlson, he tries to present himself as someone who's reasonable and plays devil's advocate. And he asks, well, you know, business demands a higher labor force participation rate for women. It's good for GDP. And this once again demonstrates just how out of touch he is and how mind-numbingly stupid this conversation is. Parents aren't saying, well, you know, I don't want to work. I'd rather stay home with Timmy, but I really want to improve the U.S. economy and grow our GDP. They're doing it because they have to. How do you not know this? I mean, they're so out of touch, and I don't, I don't know how you can be a normal American, see this conversation take place, and not have a bunch of red flags go off in your head, even if you're predisposed to agree with Tucker Carlson and Fox News. Because this is a conversation where two idiots demonstrate just how out of touch they are. So I don't see how this can resonate with anyone. And they're not even talking about the real issue here, which is that parents don't have a choice. I mean, who actually believes that people are just choosing to put their kids in daycare and pay thousands of dollars every single year because they think that they're not the best person to raise their children. Who actually believes that? Like, I've never talked to anyone who believes this. This is the first time I'm hearing this argument. And it proves to me that Tucker Carlson is slipping on his propaganda game. Usually, he's a lot more clever at doing propaganda on behalf of the Republican Party and in attacking Democrats, but he's slipping because this is proof of it. Because if you have this out of touch of a conversation and expect it to resonate, then I've got bad news for you. It won't.
So there was an era in American politics between the mid-80s, arguably to the mid-90s, known as the tough-on-crime era, where pretty much politicians in both parties each tried to convince the American people that they were more tough-on-crime than everyone else. Now, what resulted from supposedly tough-on-crime pushes was an explosion in the prison population. Now, a lot of this is credited to the 1994 crime bill. And during that time, you can go back and watch a lot of the House and Senate floor debates, and politicians were all talking about how horrible crime was and trying to fearmonger and that we have to take bold action and not just that, we have to be especially harsh. Harsh. Now, the crime bill didn't pass until 1994, but in 1991, it actually was first introduced and it ultimately died when the Senate and the House versions couldn't be reconciled. But Joe Biden was talking about just how tough on crime he was back then in 1991. And here's what he said about that, because I want to show you an example of just how harsh and really barbaric this rhetoric was. The president's death penalty proposals, and I might add, Biden crime bill is before us, calls for the death penalty for 40, 51 offenses. A wag in the newspaper recently wrote that something to the effect that Biden has made it a death penalty offense for everything but jaywalking. I mean, I think that that clip speaks for itself. Quote, Biden has made it a death penalty offense for everything but jaywalking. That wasn't something that he was condemning. In that context, he was bragging about this. Now, Joe Biden has recently kind of done a 180, and all of a sudden, he's saying, you know, maybe I haven't always been right about this particular issue, but he was defending this bill, the specifically 1994 crime bill, all the way up until 2016. Now, when we go to 1993, which is when he was talking about the bill that actually was codified into law by Bill Clinton, well, what he says here is also very problematic because listen to what he says. You're going to find a lot of dog whistles here and racially coded language as he speaks about the need for this crime bill. Unless we do something about that cadre of young people, tens of thousands of them, born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally, I yield myself three more minutes, because they literally have not been socialized. They literally have not had an opportunity. We should focus on them now, not out of a liberal instinct, for love, brother, and humanity, although I think that's a good instinct, but for simple, pragmatic reasons. If we don't, they will, or a portion of them will, become the predators 15 years from now. And Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. Again, it does not mean because we created them that we somehow forgive them or do not take them out of society to protect my family and yours from them. They are beyond the pale, many of those people. Beyond the pale. And it's a sad commentary on society. We have no choice but to take them out of society.
obviously what he was referring to there was super predators. Now, he didn't say the words super predator, but he was using racially coded language to prime you into thinking about super predators. And super predators, like it or not, people don't like to admit this in the Democratic Party, but this is a racist word used to describe black youth. And it was dehumanizing. It was called super predators because this group of youth pose a unique threat in that they lack empathy and they're just, they're different than the others. It was dehumanizing. It was disgusting. Now, as Joe Biden and others made the pitch for the 1994 crime bill, they got what they wanted. And the result of that, as you will see now with this statistic, is an explosion in the prison population. Now, it was already going up before 1994, but this just exacerbated a problem that already persisted in the United States. And you can argue that it dated back to the Nixon era with the war on drugs, but got really bad, you know, during the Reagan era. And then it just all came to a head with the passage of the 1994 crime bill. But there was one individual who was actually talking about the 1994 crime bill in a really clear-headed way. And that person is Senator Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders is someone who actually did go on to begrudgingly vote for the 1994 crime bill. So you can say that he's also culpable here, and I think that that would probably be fair, and I think he takes responsibility for that. But you have to acknowledge that when he says he voted for the crime bill, he voted for it specifically because he was very heavily in favor of one provision of that, of violence against women provision. So you have to understand that there's a lot of bills that have a name and then there are other bills attached to it. And this is specifically so you can get other people to support your legislation that they wouldn't otherwise be inclined to support because had the crime bill not included the violence against women provision, Bernie Sanders undoubtedly would have voted against it because he was warning about the crime bill and what could possibly come to fruition as a result of this if we take this tough-on-stance approach. And here's what he had to say back then. Mr. Chairman, how do we talk about the very serious crime problem in America without mentioning, without mentioning that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world by far? with 22% of our children in poverty and 5 million kids hungry today. Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? How do we talk about crime when this Congress is prepared this year to spend 11 times more for the military than for education? When 21% of our kids drop out of high school, when a recent study told us that twice as many young workers now earn poverty wages as 10 years ago when the gap between the rich and the poor is growing wider and when the rate of poverty continues to grow. Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? Mr. Chairman, it is my firm belief that clearly there are people in our society who are horribly violent, who are deeply sick and sociopathic, and clearly these people must be put behind bars in order to protect society from them. But it is also my view that through the neglect of our government and through a grossly irrational set of priorities, we are dooming today tens of millions of young people to a future of bitterness, misery, hopelessness, drugs, crime, and violence. And, Mr. Speaker, all the jails in the world, and we already imprison more people per capita than any other country. 
and all of the executions. Can I ask for one more moment, please? I uh, give the gentleman 30 seconds. We'll run. All the jails in the world and all the executions in the world will not make that situation right. We can either educate or electrocute. We can create meaningful jobs, rebuilding our society, or we can build more jails. Mr. Speaker, let us create a society of hope and compassion, not one of hate and vengeance. So what he did there was incredibly important because it showed that he had the foresight that everyone else in Congress lacked. He said, look, we're adopting this punishment mentality, but we're not actually examining the underlying causal factors that lead to crime in the first place. We're not looking at addressing poverty. We're not looking at actually targeting the things that would reduce poverty overall because everyone was so hell-bent on just punishing, punishing, punishing. And what Bernie Sanders warned about was that this would lead to a society where we are prioritizing punishment over solving the problem we all claim to care so much about. We shouldn't be building more jails. We should be building more schools. And that was the overall message. And when you look back today, after seeing the results of what the 1994 crime bill did, it's easy to see that Bernie Sanders was correct. Now, the tough on crime era ended certainly by the 2010s, but not everyone let off of this tough on crime mentality. Another 2020 presidential candidate still couldn't really let go and kind of made fun of the sentiment that Bernie Sanders expressed back in the 1990s when he said, look, we should be building schools, not jails. We should be taking care of people who are more likely to commit crimes, not punish them. But there were some politicians in the 2010s that still made fun of that stance. Okay, so I say with all love and warmth <laughs> that part of the concern also for people who, um, who are progressive thinking and liberal-minded, or just progressive thinking in terms of just fix it, fix it, is that we all have these posters in our closet that is attached to a stick that we sometimes will card out when we're talking about criminal justice policy and those statistics that you first heard when we opened it up, incarceration, and we run around with these signs, build more schools, less jails. Build more schools, less jails. And we walk around everywhere. Build more schools. We protest. Build more schools, less jails. Put money into education, not prisons. There's a fundamental problem with that approach, in my opinion. And it's this. I agree with that conceptually. But you have not addressed the reason I have three padlocks on my front door. Bernie Sanders is the only one that turned out to be right. And it's not the only issue that Bernie Sanders was ahead of everyone else on. Now, the reason why I am spotlighting these three individuals in particular is because they're largely viewed as the 2020 presidential frontrunners. So it's important to look at this issue and acknowledge who was best about this and who was saying the same thing since the 1990s. And clearly, that individual was Bernie Sanders. One of the things that I think I love the most about Bernie Sanders is that the more you look at his record and the more you find 
the more you end up liking him because what you find is that he's been consistent for the entirety of his life. The same thing he was fighting for and saying when he was a college student is what he's still saying today. However, when you compare that with other candidates, the deeper you dive, the more you look, the less you end up liking them because you just find traits about them that are undesirable, you find contradictions in their record, and you find things that make them not someone who progressives want to support. So, for example, we learned that Kamala Harris, who wants to face off against Donald Trump in 2020, actually took money from Donald Trump in the form of a campaign contribution. And back in 2011, she accepted the first contribution from a Trump. And then in 2014, she took money from his daughter, Ivanka. Now, when it comes to Joe Biden, we recently learned that he's been getting advice from corporate executives on how to speak to and appeal to millennials, presumably so he can avoid another Pokemon go to the polls moment, which was, I think, probably one of the worst moments of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. So it's clear that he has a problem with millennials because he keeps talking down to us and pissing us off. So he's trying to figure out a way to talk to millennials and get them to like him. But if you have to do that, you're already doing it wrong. The fact that you have to talk to corporate executives shows that you're not going to be able to appeal to millennials, Joe. So learning this about Joe Biden in and of itself makes me like him less. So that's what we're finding out about the other 2020 presidential contenders. Meanwhile, here's what we found with regard to Bernie Sanders. He was talking about climate change back in 1989, and he was saying something then that we're all saying now with regard to climate change, specifically the mainstream media's lack of interest in the subject. We face, as all people know, an ecological crisis in our time, whether it's acid rain, the destruction of the ozone layer, the greenhouse effect. One would think that the CBSs and the NBCs of the world will be doing prime time specials on these programs, having different scientists, talking about the issues, involving people in understanding what's going on in terms of our planet. They don't. The function of television is to make as much money as possible for the owners of the television stations and for those people who advertise the 30 second ads on television. So I would say that we're not going to bring about serious political change in this country until we deal with the media, which more and more is being swallowed up by large conglomerates. What's crazy is that everything he said there is still 100% true today. And while Americans are only now waking up to just how terrible the mainstream corporate media is, he was saying the same thing that we're all saying now back in 1989 and it's not like when it comes to climate change that was a one-off for bernie sanders because there's another video from two years earlier in 1987 where he was being a leader on climate change and was actually teaching a class of middle schoolers about climate change and what it means and how it would affect them in the future some of you may have seen there were some articles in the newspaper recently about the destruction of the ozone layer and the fact that the climate the temperature on Earth may rise a few degrees. Is that significant? Is that just to mean that the summer will be a little bit warm when we go swimming another day or two? Okay? Well, it's not, it doesn't seem significant, but if it gets like hardly any warmer, the polar ice caps could melt and like flood Precisely. And flood us. The point being that if you don't think that raising temperature a few degrees is an enormous consequence, <clears throat> you're very wrong. 
Because it has, it doesn't mean just that, oh boy, I can go swimming a few more days. It means that the type of, of rays that come down from the sun will make us vulnerable to disease. It will have an impact on the polar caps in melting them. And it gets back to the, the point that she made, which is that everything relates to everything else. Okay, when that loudspeaker interrupted us, it relates to us. It relates to the conversation that we have. Everything relates to everything else. The environment is a very, very fragile system of interrelationships. And if one thing is disrupted, it'll have an effect on everything else. For example, if climate, if the raising of the temperature has an effect on drought, and I don't know that it will, but it might, and on the growing of food, on the growing of wheat, what does that mean in terms of the way we live? Yeah. Well, if, if the wheat is destroyed, then we're going to lose a lot of food that we eat. Right, exactly. And if, if pollution has an effect on water, what does it obviously mean? Yep. Well, obviously you can't live without fresh water. And as you know, in many areas of the country, now, now we live right here on the lake and we have a problem. I'll talk about in a second. But in many areas of the country, now water, you know, we take water for granted. It's not a big deal. But in many areas of the country, the availability of fresh drinking water is a major, major problem. And it is getting worse. That right there is exactly what leadership looks like. Now, after learning everything that we've learned about Bernie Sanders' past and seeing these videos, my question is, if you're progressive, how can you not support Bernie Sanders? That's really the question we should be asking ourselves. Because think about this, it's not just like he was correct on climate change. You can go back, watch old C-SPAN videos of him on the House and the Senate floor talking about mass incarceration, talking about the Iraq War, talking about legalizing marijuana. You can find newspaper articles of him as the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, championing LGBTQ rights, allowing a gay pride parade to take place in Burlington with a city council that was rampantly homophobic that wanted to kill his career because of that. You can find consistency on civil rights and Medicare for All. He's one of the first people to talk about this and has been one of the most vocal proponents of a single-payer healthcare system on virtually every single issue. It's not just that Bernie Sanders has been right, but he's been a trailblazer. He's the one who is raising the bar and forcing everyone else to keep up with him, and they can barely keep up with him. So, when I see all of this... You know, the more I learn about Bernie Sanders, the deeper we dive into his record, the more appealing he becomes because it just compounds what we already know about him, that he is incredibly consistent. You're not going to find much instances of him contradicting himself. If any, you're not going to find him really taking the wrong stand on an issue. That's rare. It happens, but it is rare. And he's just all around someone who I trust on these issues. When he says that he supports Medicare for all, I can trust that he's being genuine because he said the same damn thing for decades about Medicare for all. When people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are only now starting to talk about it. So that's why I'm supporting Bernie Sanders among other reasons. It's because trustworthy politicians are hard to come by and you still have to be nuanced and thorough and question all politicians including bernie sanders but when it comes to consistency and trustworthiness 
I'm going to go with the person who actually has a track record on these progressive issues, not just the person who's a Johnny-come-lately who's only supporting issues like Medicare for All and marijuana legalization because it's politically expedient for them to do that. I'm going to support the person who's been anti-war his whole career and been on the right side of history for the entirety of his career. And I hope that you will too. I don't usually give the Democratic Party credit for much because, let's face it, they rarely deserve credit because when they actually do do the right thing, it's usually because we made them do it and they were, you know, dragged by us kicking and screaming. However, in this instance, full stop, they get credit where it's due because Democrats in both the House and the Senate are not just taking a stand on an issue that's really important, but they are being incredibly bold and they're coming out swinging. So what are they doing? Well, they are introducing legislation called the Save the Internet Act. And even though it's just three pages long, it does exactly what it needs to do and would accomplish what we all want. It would undo the FCC's 2017 repeal of net neutrality. And yes, this is actually a real net neutrality bill. It's not a shell bill like other industry shills like Marshall Blackburn were trying to push. This is a real net neutrality bill. Now, as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, House and Senate Democrats on Wednesday introduced legislation that would fully restore net neutrality protections in a bid to rescue the open internet from corporate throttling, discrimination, and censorship. The Save the Internet Act is one of the few pieces of congressional legislation that actually does what it says in the title, Evan Greer, Deputy Director of the Advocacy Group Fight for the Future, said in a statement. The internet is going to come down like a political hammer on any lawmaker who fails to co-sponsor it. If passed, the Save the Internet Act would fully overturn the Republican-controlled Federal Communications Commission's unpopular net neutrality repeal, which went into effect last year. This latest legislative effort to reinstate strong net neutrality rules comes after the House last year failed to pass a resolution to overturn the FCC's repeal. The Senate passed the same resolution with the support of three Republicans. Now, the great news is that this already reportedly has 44 co-sponsors in the Senate, and the main sponsor of this bill, Ed Markey, who sponsored the last resolution, the CRA resolution actually, to undo the FCC's repeal, he actually believes that this is going to pass and arrive at Donald Trump's desk ultimately. And he states in a tweet last year, after the Senate voted to save the net, Paul Ryan ran out the clock on net neutrality in the House. This time, it's our House. Today, Democrats in both the Senate and House are announcing the Save the Internet Act, and we're going to send it to Donald Trump's desk. And that's exactly what I want to hear. Now, you also have Nancy Pelosi surprisingly taking the right side on this issue, tweeting out House and Senate Democrats are coming together to send a clear message. We need to save the net. So I am going to say something that I don't usually say on this podcast. Good job, Democrats. You're doing exactly what we want you to do. And almost every single senator is tweeting about this. You have Doug Jones sharing polling numbers about just how popular net neutrality is. And they're all basically unified, like we often see 
how the right wing is unified. They have this one cohesive message, and this time Democrats are doing it. So this is a breath of fresh air. You rarely see this from Democrats, but when you do see it, it's like a unicorn. You don't want to look away because it is absolutely wonderful. So there's good news and bad news with regard to this particular bill. The good news, as I already alluded to, is that it has a pretty good chance at passing the House and the Senate. Definitely in the House, maybe, you know, it's still an open question in the Senate, although we did get a couple of Republicans vote for it back um, last year when they were trying to undo the repeal of net neutrality using the CRA, and that is the Congressional um, Review Act. But in the event, this is the bad news, this passes and it arrives on Donald Trump's desk, will he sign it into law? And we can only speculate, but my guess, if I had to predict, would be probably not. Now, the good news is that, the good news and the caveat to the bad news really is that Donald Trump hasn't really staked out a position on net neutrality. For the most part, he's been silent here. And for all we know, he's still pissed off at Ajit Pai for tanking the Sinclair merger. So he could just sign this bill into law as kind of a middle finger to Ajit Pai. Um, he could do what he did before and condemn net neutrality. But since the words net neutrality aren't being used in the title of the bill, maybe it'll go over his head and I'll sign it anyway. I'm not sure, but I will be watching very closely. Either way, Donald Trump has remained silent on this issue and it's about time he puts his name on it and put his name on it either literally by codifying this into law or choosing to not take a stand and allowing this to not get signed, which means that he is unequivocally against net neutrality. Now, before, he said he was against net neutrality, but he clearly didn't know what net neutrality was when he was talking about this because he said something about the fairness doctrine and Obama's new net neutrality rules as a takeover. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. But with that being said, if he signed this into law... I would be surprised, and this would be a win for the internet, because you have a Republican president signing it into law. I'm not going to hold my breath that he does that, but if this does pass in the House and the Senate, then that sends a huge message to the American people. It shows that the Democrats are fighting for you, at least on this one issue. So Republicans, if they know what's good for them, they need to get on board with this. And any Democrat who's a holdout, I don't suspect that there will be many, they need to realize that Evan Greer is not exaggerating here when he states that the internet will come down on that individual lawmaker like a political hammer if they don't co-sponsor this legislation. So we're looking at individuals who didn't back the CRA resolution to restore net neutrality last time. If you don't back this, if you don't co-sponsor this, we're coming for you. We're going to try to primary you if the pressure we inevitably put on you won't work. So it's rare that we see good news and it's even more rare that we see Democrats doing the right thing. But right here, I've got to give them credit where it's due. This is exactly what we want them to do. This is exactly what they should be doing. Coming out swinging on issues that are overwhelmingly popular and that would help the American people. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. Democrats have gone bat crap crazy. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
has introduced the Green New Deal, which is, which is, remember this one, use it, it's a watermelon. Green on the outside, deep, deep red communist on the inside. But capitalism safeguards the promise and hope of inequality. Um, three weeks ago tomorrow, we had our second granddaughter. And like I said a few weeks ago, yeah. And her name is Reagan. How presidential is that? Beautiful Reagan Elise. I lobbied for Trump, but it was a little too soon, maybe. So we'll, we'll see. Trump is not the most feminine name, but we could make it. Hey, you we know, go, I mean, but neither is Reagan, We're going to take actually. a page out of the liberal playbook. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't matter. We can identify how we want. Oh, by the way, she is a daughter. She's our granddaughter. She's a and we're raising her as a girl. She's beautiful. We're, we're not letting her have a choice. She's what there, God there will be outraged tomorrow that you decided for it's her. God God makes the choice of what the babies are going to be and God decided hey, she would be a girl. You don't have to raise them as a girl. She's just got a little baby doll right, right under her, her arm every second. Yeah. I mean, my boys always had guns in their hands. So you, we didn't. That, that's not something. Hashtag me too. That's not something you teach them. That's something they're born with. But as far as those cows you mentioned, I've got 100 cows. You just let Alexandria Cortez show up at my house and try to take my cows away. Yes. So. I, I love cows, Jerry. They're delicious. <laughs> that are there for 20 years. White hair. See, I don't have white hair. Freaking <laughs> 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 You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by clicking join underneath the YouTube video. If you're watching that way, you can go to humanistreport.com support, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. And we also have brand new t-shirts available in the Humanist Report store on Teespring. That includes policy over platitudes and the redesign, this snowflake votes shirts, and cuck capitalism shirts all available <laughs> at our teespring store so i will see you all next week uh i'm mike figueredo this is the humanist report take care everyone girly mike fettuccine needs your support on patreon what a loser Visit patreon.com slash humanist report to support the low ratings humanist report. Sad. My views are much higher. <laughs>